0: Joe
1: Rogan podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience.
0: Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. Pleasure to meet you. I've uh, I've really enjoyed your conversations online. I I love your perspective, and uh, it's really a a real pleasure to have you in here.
1: Well, I really am happy to be here with you. Thank you.
0: My pleasure. Uh, This book, The Myth of Normal, this is your book.
1: Yeah, it's called The Myth of Normal. Trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture, and it kind of sums up everything I've ever learned.
0: What exactly is toxic about our culture?
1: Is that a too big a question? No, it, it's it's the uh, it's the central question. Yeah. Um, if you imagine you're a microbiologist in a laboratory growing microorganisms in a petri dish, that's called a culture. You know, you put in a brew and with the right nutrients and the microorganisms thrive and they multiply. But if a lot of them start getting sick and a lot of them started dying, you'd say this is a toxic culture. Now if you look at what's happening in North America now, there's an article in the New York Times, 10 days before we speak, of a teenager being on 10 different psychiatric medications. 10 different psychiatric medications. More and more kids are being diagnosed with ADHD, with anxiety, with depression, the rate of childhood suicide is going up and everybody's saying, what's going on here? Why is this going on? More and more people are getting autoimmune disease, um, mental health issues, the overdose crisis in the States, over 100,000 people died of overdoses. Either we assume that these are all accidents and sort of um, blows of misfortune or we get that there's something about this culture that's fomenting so much illness. 70% of American adults are on at least one medication. Can 70? 70, yeah. 50, 40% are on about two at least. That's a toxic culture. There's all kinds of, now I could talk about what makes it that way, but when I talk about toxic culture, I'm talking about its impact on the people who inhabit it. So this toxic culture, are,
0: are you just talking about uh, the the overall way human beings communicate is it the way we're being raised? Is it the foods we eat? Is it everything? It's all done. It's all.
1: And uh, salient amongst them, how we raise our kids.
0: What about how we raise our kids?
1: Well, if you look at how human beings evolved uh, over millions, really, of years and uh, hundreds of thousands of years, and even our own species has been on the earth for about 150,000, 200,000 years. For all that time, until the blink of an eye ago, we lived out in nature in small band hunter-gatherer groups where kids were raised communally, so that it wasn't just an isolated nuclear family or an isolated mother or father. It was grandparents and uncles and aunts and the whole community. It takes a village, as the saying goes. It takes a whole community. Now, children also were picked up when they cried, in fact, they were never even put down. They slept with their parents. They were breastfed for three or four years. Um, in today's society, and I can start even before that. already we know that stresses on the pregnant women have a negative in- impact on the infant, physiological impact on the infant's brain development. It's mean, not even controversial. In our society, we don't pay attention to women's emotional needs when they're pregnant. And we don't pay attention to the child's emotional needs so the child needs to be held and accepted unconditionally now in our society we actually tell parents not to pick up their kids when they're crying yeah and that is an insult and a trauma to the child and that has a impact on the child's trust in the world sense of safety sense of belonging how they feel about themselves you know in the book i talk about my mom and I talk about my own infancy in Budapest, Hungary, as a Jewish infant other than the Nazis. So you can imagine how stressed my mom was. But forget the Nazis for a minute. I read her diary, and she writes, this is when I'm two weeks of age, and we're in the maternity hospital. And she says, my poor little Gabor, my heart is breaking for you, because you want to be fed and you're hungry, but I promised the doctor I would only feed you every four hours. And you've been crying for the last hour and a half. What's it like for an infant to lie there next to their mom and not be picked up and fed for an hour and a half? Now try telling a mother baboon or a mother cat or a mother bear to ignore the child's distress for an hour and a half. So the very advice that we give to a lot of parents these days already damages the child.
0: Where is that, that advice coming from? Like who are the experts that thought it was a good idea to not pick up children when they're crying?
1: It's been going on for about a 100 years. Um, maybe even longer uh dr spock i don't know if you remember the Mm -hmm. name benjamin spock his um book was just the most influential parenting bible for decades through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and he talked about the tyranny of the baby he wants to be picked up he says well how you deal with that is you walk out and you shut the door and you don't go back in other words you isolate the infant now Look at how hunter-gatherers raise their children. They carry their babies everywhere. I met a Cree woman once who told me in our community kids weren't even allowed to touch the ground for two years. They were just held all the time. So it's modern life. It's the pressure and stresses of modern life acting on parents that makes it so difficult for them to really be there for their kids. Now, my mother's heart was breaking. She went against her own instincts to follow the doctor's advice. Again, you tell a mother rat or a mother baboon to ignore the baby's cries, and you find out what mother rage is all about.
0: And what does this effect of not holding babies and not comforting them when they cry? What does this have on the child?
1: Well, let's say you're my friend, okay? And you come to me for help as an adult, and I ignore you. What's the impact on you? What are you going to believe?
0: I don't know. I mean, if if you ignore me, I'm uh, going to take into account what the rest of the world says.
1: You might, but what would you believe about my attitude towards you?
0: I would think you're ambivalent. Yeah, and I don't 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 care. care.
1: Exactly. That's exactly the impact on the child. Not consciously, but unconsciously, the child makes the assumption that there's something wrong with me. I'm not lovable. Uh, The world is an unsafe place because we learn about our worlds through how we interact with our caregivers that's the template i mean if you ever raised a puppy dog you know that how you treat that little infant animal has a huge impact on what kind of a creature they're going to develop into well human beings are the same in fact even more so because we're more dependent and more helpless than the average animal is so we need that care and that connection even more um, powerfully. So when we're lacking it, the infant assumes, unconsciously, that there's something wrong with them, they're not lovable, the world is not a trusting place. Then we spend our lives acting out from that unconscious belief.
0: So the majority or a large portion of our culture develops as a child with this problem.
1: In in this world, yes, in this world very much so, then, then there is the, like if you look at what the, what a psychologist friend of mine calls the irreducible needs of children, irreducible meaning that if you don't meet these needs, there's going to be negative consequences. The first one is unconditional loving acceptance, just the sense of belonging, attachment it's called, connection, the infant needs that. You know how baby elephant is born? When the mother elephant goes into labor, all the mother elephants stand around in a circle. When the infant plops on the ground, they all reach out their trunks and they stroke the infant. That's natural instinct. You belong to us. You're welcome here. Now the human infant needs that at least as much as the baby elephant. Now, so the first need is this unconditional loving welcome in the world. The second need of the child is um, that the child shouldn't have to work to be loved, to be accepted. I shouldn't have to be pretty, smart, successful, compliant, good, nice, anything. I'm just, I shouldn't have to work for what is my birthright, which is to be accepted as a person with value and worth and lovable in their own right. That's the second. And the third need is the freedom to experience all our emotions. Okay, all our emotions. Now our brains have emotional circuits um, for rage, which we need to protect ourselves, for lust, which we need to reproduce, for seeking curiosity to explore and get to know our world. One of the, the, and there's other emotional circuits as well, for, for care so that we can look after each other. These are circuits that nature, evolution, has wired us with. These have been studied. Now, so one of the needs we have is the freedom to experience all our emotions, all our emotions, our gut feelings and everything else. A lot of parenting experts will tell you an angry child should be made to sit by themselves till they come back to normal. I'm I'm quoting a very famous person here. Um, a psychologist who said this in his book. An angry child should be made to sit by themselves so that they come back to normal. Now, what's the message to the child? Anger is not normal. If you want to belong to us, you have to suppress your anger. Now, suppressing the anger is a trauma because anger is given to us by nature as a natural boundary defense. If I enter your space in a way that threatens you, you better get angry with me, get out. That's healthy anger. If I suppress that, if I depress it, push it down, 30 years later you're diagnosed with this disease called depression. It's not a disease. It was your response to the stupid advice of the parenting experts that your mothers and your fathers believed they should follow. It's a coping mechanism. you pushed on the anger to be accepted by your environment, but later on that causes you problems, mental health issues and physical health issues. So when I'm talking about irreducible needs, I'm talking about the real needs, and in this society, parents are told to keep ignoring their own parenting instincts, to make the child behave, the way they expect them to behave, and the result is a lot of kids are hurt without parent meaning to hurt them. They love their kids. They do their best. But because of this culture, they actually end up hurting the kids.
0: So this is standard in America. Pretty much. And you feel like this is the base of this host of psychological problems.
1: Well, I wouldn't want to put everything down to just one dynamic. But but it's certainly what happens to children in the first three years is a huge template for problems later on.
0: And once a child develops and becomes an adult and has all these issues that are connected to the way they were raised, what can be done then?
1: Well, that's where the process of healing has to begin. And um, by the way, um, well, okay, yeah, let me me deal with the question. Um, What can be done then? Well, the first thing we have to do is to recognize what's going on. That that what happened to me, like if I can talk about my own example. Okay. So, medical doctor, I'm in my 40s, successful physician, newspaper columnist, respected, good income and all that. But I'm a workaholic. I have to be working. If I'm not working, I'm kind of depressed and um, alienated, which is how my family experiences me, including my young kids. But why am I that way? Because as a Jewish infant under the Nazis, the message I got is that the world didn't want me. Now, not because the Nazis directly affected me as an infant, although we lived under Nazi occupation in my first year of life. So my mother was, our life was under daily threat. In the book, there's a painting of my mother and I with her wearing the yellow star. When I was 11 months old, she handed me to the complete stranger in the street to save my life in Budapest. I stood on that very pavement just a couple of months ago when I visited my birth city. So she gives me the total stranger to convey me to some relatives in hiding because she thinks where we're living, I'm not going to survive another day. So she does this to save my life. Now what message do I get? I don't know that there are Nazis. I don't know that my mother is passing me on to a stranger to save my life. What sense do I get? I'm being abandoned. I'm not wanted. I'm not lovable. Well, if you're not lovable, if you're not wanted, one of the things you can do is to go to medical school. Because now they're going to want you all the time. And every, day, mm. and every day you get to prove to yourself how, much, how important you are and how much they want you and how essential you are to everybody's life. What message do my kids get when dad is not around all the time? Or when he's around, he's kind of in withdrawal from workaholism. They get the same message. So we pass it on. This is what trauma is. We pass it on unwittingly from one generation to the next. And we don't even know we're doing it. I didn't know I was doing it. So, you know, when you say, how do we, at some point you have to say, so there I'm this successful doctor, columnist and so on, but I'm depressed. At some point I have to start asking, and my kids are afraid of me. I have to start asking myself, what's going on here? Why is this tension in my family? Why are my wife and I breathing together at this point, 54 years coming this November, but when our kids were small, we had a very tense marriage. And I have to start asking myself, what's going on? And that's when you start looking for the answers. So the first thing is we have to recognize that the way it is is not working, and maybe it doesn't have to be this way.
0: So how did you go about shifting the way you think about your life and the world and being a workaholic? and? Mm. Becoming what you feel like Do you feel like now you're a healthy person?
1: (laughs) You should ask me that relatively you should ask me that on my deathbed, okay? Because then then I'll give you the final answer, but uh, well
0: right now. How do you feel right now?
1: I've come a long way I'm much more balanced Um, I'm not 100% there. I'm not you know, Like
0: what's missing?
1: Every once in a while when I get triggered I still can behave like I had never learned anything at all you know, sometimes when you're triggered, your your the circuits in your brain that can regulate you and uh, guide you, ground you, go offline. I can still go offline sometimes, but much less than I ever used to. And I come back to groundedness much more rapidly. I also have learned how to take care of myself. You know, so but I've done a lot of work to to to, to sort out all the traumas that. Experienced as a child. So it's it's been t- it's taken a lot of work.
0: And what kind of thing really triggers you
1: mm. When I'm not understood When well, I'm you're not, not understood when really I'm, when I'm not seen when I'm And when I perceive as myself as not being respected for who I am and I don't mean respect for what I do I mean respected for because I mean people can disagree with what I do and I don't take that as a sign of disrespect It's Just a disagreement but when I'm not respected just for who I am as a as a person. As a human being? As a human being, yeah.
0: So, if someone insults you or mm-hmm. someone dismisses you or treats you like shit?
1: Very often I can see that as their problem. They're projecting something on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you've had the same experience. Sure. In fact, I know you had, because I saw your interview with um, Lex uh, Friedman. Mm-hmm. And, and he talked about how you handled uh, the, the negative vibes that come your way sometimes. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I can see that as their issue, but if I'm particularly vulnerable, maybe stressed, maybe I haven't taken care of myself, maybe I haven't swum for a few days, so my nervous system is on edge, then maybe I can take it personally and then I can get triggered.
0: That seems like one of the best forms of medicine, some sort of rigorous exercise.
1: You don't want to talk to me if I haven't swum for a couple of days.
0: Swimming is your thing?
1: That's my thing. It's a great one. Yeah. It's
0: a great one because it's yeah. physically exhausting, exhaust the muscles, the cardiovascular system, Yeah the mind gets in that meditative state of constantly stroking and constantly exactly. kicking
1: it's re- and you have to breathe don't you mm-hmm. it's like a <gasps> yep. you know and and so i do i do that 50 minutes an hour a day and and it makes a huge difference for me
0: mm. and when you do that do you do it with the intent of enjoying it or do you do it saying that this is the necessary work i have to do or is it a combination of both
1: for me it's enjoyable i i love I look forward to stretching out my body in the pool and just getting that rhythm, as you say, going, mm-hmm. getting the breathing going, um, and just notice the thoughts. Oh, next week I'm going to be on Joe Rogan, you know, and and, and notice that those thoughts come and go, but mm-hmm. not 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 stay with them. Just watch the watch the video in my mind as I swim, you know.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you recognized at. How old were you when you recognized that you really had a problem that you had to do something I, was, I would say
1: I was in my early forties early to mid early to mid forties I would say
0: so what were the first steps that you did to try to come out of that and just evolve your process
1: yeah I will answer that, but I have to tell you as well that this is not separate from my medical work either because in my medical practice, I began to notice that who got sick and who didn't wasn't accidental. There were certain traumatic imprints in people who got physically ill and mentally ill, who got addicted and so on. So what I saw in medical practice kind of melded with what I experienced in my own life. So my steps were both to start talking to my patients and to find out about their lives, and I began to see the commonalities Amongst people including myself and my patients doesn't matter how Addicted or how ill they were there was always something about them that I could recognize in myself And I began to go to th- for therapy and I began to really research the child developmental and trauma literature And the more I did the more I learned So the and, and then you know eventually like you I got into psychedelic work as well That didn't happen until much later, but it was all that
0: And what psychedelic work did you do? And how did that help you?
1: How did that happen? So my book on addiction in the realm of hungry ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, was published in 2009 in Canada and in 2010 in the States, in which I point out that addiction is always, always, always rooted in trauma. Always? Always, yeah, 100%. What
0: about genetics? Do they play a factor, or is the genetics just related also to trauma?
1: Well, here's the interesting thing about genetics. You know what the best letter I received was? Um for a woman who was 48, and she wrote me from somewhere in the States, she sent me an email to thank me for the birth of her over 40, four-year-old child. She said, we just celebrated my daughter's four-year birthday, thanks to you. She said, because my husband used to be an alcoholic, and he used to believe that his alcoholism was genetically determined. So he didn't want to have a child, because he didn't want to pass on the, addiction, the alcoholism gene, because he, he had suffered so badly. But then he read your book, and he realized it wasn't genetics at all. It was uh, trauma as a result. And I was just at the edge of the childbearing years. I was 44. So now we have this four-year-old child. Thank you. And I thought this is the best praise I've ever got because I've been thanked quite often for saving people's lives, but never for causing one Long Mm. long distance. So go back to your question about genetics. There's no gene for addictions. I don't care what they tell you. What they are, there are some genes that make it more likely that you might become addicted, but they don't cause addiction as such. In fact, the addictions have nothing to do with, sorry, the genes have nothing to do with addictions at all. Now you say, well, how come, you know, my father was an alcoholic, my grandfather was an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. It's not the gene that's passed on, it's the trauma that's passed on. Because what's it like to grow up in a home with alcoholism? Now, there are some genes that make some kids more prone to have mental health conditions and addictions and so on. But there's no gene that causes any specific illness, or sorry, any specific mental health illness, any specific uh, addiction. What there are is a large group of genes that the more of them you have, the more likely you are to have any mental health conditions, including addictions. But you can have those same genes and be a perfectly happy, successful, joyful, creative person depending on how the environment, acts on those genes. Which means that the genes are not for disease, they're for sensitivity. And the more sensitive you are, when things go well, the happier you are. When things go badly, the more unhappy you are, the more pain you have, the more you have to run away from pain, and that's where the addiction comes in. So the genes are not for addiction as such, and most of my profession gets this completely wrong. So, yes, there's a genetic position predisposition not to addiction as such, but to either joy or suffering, depending on what the environment does when it acts on you. So, um, I forgot where this conversation began, but this is where we are now.
0: Well, we're just talking about addiction and genetics and whether or not, you know, when, when you hear about families that have uh, a history of alcoholism, mm-hmm. we just assume... Based on what we're told, that that's because this is the gene. Uh, yeah, and it's probably the part of the world your ancestors are from, and whether or not they had a history of abusing alcohol, and there's genetic predetermining factors.
1: Okay, there's a great example to refute that right here in the United States. So prior to colonization, the native people had no problem with addiction at all. And they even had some alcohol in uh, New Mexico area. There was, really? no, there was Yeah, apparently so. There was all, all these other plants around, by the way. There was no addiction. Then you traumatize that population. You subject them to the extermination and the destruction of their ways of life and their culture. Like in Canada, we have a terrible problem. When I worked with addictions in Vancouver's downtown east side, 30% of my clients were indigenous people. They make up 5% of the population. 30% of the people, in, of the men in jail in Canada, 50% of the women in jail in Canada are indigenous people. They have much more addiction, child abuse, um, mental health issues, suicide, violence, Maybe you heard about the stabbings up in Canada right now. Yeah. It was in an indigenous community. Why? Because they were so traumatized by what happened to them. And for a hundred years their children were abducted from their homes by the state and the church, sent to these residential schools where they were sexually, physically, emotionally abused. I had a I met a woman by the way, I remember where we started talking about snow. You're asking about psychedelic work, I'll come mm, back to that in yeah. a minute. I was in a psychedelic ceremony with some indigenous people in Canada maybe about mm, eight years ago now. I met a woman who was taken from her family by law, abducted by the police, taken to dozen years school. The parents weren't even allowed to visit these kids. They, they were, her first day in school as a four-year-old, she spoke her tribal language you know what the punishment was? They stuck a pin through her tongue. This was in the 1960s in Canada. 1950s, I'm sorry, late 1950s. For a whole hour, this little girl couldn't put her needle, couldn't put her tongue back in her mouth for fear of cutting her lips. That's before the sexual abuse began. By the time she was nine-year-old, she was an alcoholic. By the time she was 20 years old, she was a heroin addict. Not her grandchildren, are heroin addicts. What's being passed on here is the trauma, not the addiction. Now, the reason I began to talk about addiction is after that book came out, showing the relationship between addiction and, and trauma, I would travel and I'd be speaking, and people would ask me, what do you know about ayahuasca and the healing of addiction? I'd say I know nothing. Next city. Hey, what do you know about addiction and the healing of trauma? Nothing. Finally got sick of it. I said, you know, I, I've just written a book. I've just spent three years writing a book, and you keep asking about the one thing I don't know anything about. But you know what? The, the universe is a way of knocking at our doors. And somebody said to me, did you know you could actually do this up here in Vancouver? I said, okay, this is a message. I got to do it. I did the ayahuasca and in half an hour I got why i have been asked that question. I just got it. Because with the ayahuasca and the chanting, I had these tears of love flowing down my cheeks. Not love for any one particular person, just open-heartedness. It was amazing. And I understood something. How close I had been to love all my life, even to my spouse and to my children and to the world. Why was my heart so closed? Because it had been bruised so early, and so we closed on our hearts. We don't even know what the kind of love is. So that with this plant, that opened up. And I also got the pain... Of what happens to us when we close our hearts, all of us human beings, it really hurts. And then we have to protect ourselves from that pain with drugs and behaviors and sex and gambling and work and everything else. So I got that if we can both feel the pain that we've been running from all our lives, but also maybe experience the love that's underneath all that pain, we don't have to keep running. No, it's not that simple, and it's not like overnight I was a changed person. Believe me, I wasn't. You know, I back, but but at least I saw the possibilities, and then I decided I'm going to work with this plant. I'm going to help others with this plant. I'm going to help myself with this plant. So that's how I got into psychedelic work.
0: So this one experience, you, you have this revelation. You you feel this love, and you understand that you have been closed off to this your yeah. whole life. Yeah do you need subsequent experiences do you do you just internalize and reflect and try to sort things out and then or like how how what is the process for you
1: well what you said should have been the process but i didn't know that yet mm. you know I, I had this thing and then you now the buddha um has got this terrifying story that he tells that's one of the metaphoric stories that he tells of this two strong men dragging a third man towards an abyss they're gonna throw him into the pit and he resists but he's not strong enough to resist the Buddha the two strong men he called it our habit energies our are ingrained habits, beliefs, subconscious emotions everything that's driving us and if we want to overcome those habit energies, we have to do what you just said, integrate, work on it, reflect, hang out with it. I didn't do that. I just plunged back into my work call I'm not gonna save the world using this plant. And I started leading retreats and I did a great job helping others, but I didn't go far enough with myself. So that's something I had to learn.
0: How did you recognize that?
1: Well, I, I can tell you a story sure so it's it's in the book Um, 2019 this is like three years three years ago now in June I flew to Peru to lead an ayahuasca retreat for physicians and the healers and psychiatrists and psychologists counselors from around the world and by that time I had a worldwide reputation, my books had been published in you know, 30 languages. and So people, healers came from all over the world to work with me in the Amazon jungle at this ayahuasca center. Now I don't lead the ceremonies, I'm not a shaman. So my role is not to, pour the, not to, to, to give the, the brew or to lead the ceremony, but to help people formulate their intention. And after the experience to help them integrate it to help them understand what happened to them. Um, I, I'm adept at doing that. So we do the first ceremony. And there are six shamans, maestros and maestras, three men, three women, these beautiful, short little people stand up to my, to my eyebrows. And uh, there's a first ceremony in the Malacca, the tent-like building in which the ceremony is held. And they chant. Each of them chant, there's 24 of us, there's 23 participants that came out of the world, all from all over the world, four continents to work with me in the jungle, and there's me. When the shamans come to chant to me, all six of them, in turn, I'm sitting there thinking, you can do your best, but this brain is too thick, you're not going to get through, this skull is too thick, try and break through this one. And not much happens. Next morning they send a delegation to me. And they say, we can't have you in ceremony. Why not? Because we think that you have such dark, dense energy that affects everybody else in the room and it interferes with our capacity to help the others. And because of this dark, dark energy that you're carrying, our ikaros, our chants can't penetrate you
0: what is like what's causing them to have this reaction like what are you doing
1: well it's not what i'm doing it's it's my fixed belief
0: and how do they know about this fixed belief how's it manifesting
1: because they're shamans they just feel it they sense it they're highly trained people they pick up on energies i don't say anything and they don't know who the heck i am they're not impressed with my reputation and my international standing or the books that I've published. And when I, you know, they, they just pick it up. That's what shamans do. That's what a good shaman does. So they said, our, our chance can't penetrate it, but, uh, but worse than that, it's, it's, it's affecting the others. So we want to help the others. We can't have you in the room. And furthermore, they said, we think you have worked with so many traumatized people in your life and you've absorbed their traumas, and you haven't cleared it out of yourself. And furthermore, they said, "And you were very small, we think you had a big scare and you haven't got over it yet. This is me at age 75. Wow. After, now, in the book, I can sh- I'll, sh- I'll show you a, a painting, um, if I may. This is uh, from the first chapter. This is a painting that my wife did from a photograph the photograph is in the upper left-hand corner of the painting of my mother and I at three months of age. You notice she's wearing the yellow star that Jews had to wear under the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you see in the expression? You of my a
0: traumatized baby.
1: Yeah. These people picked that up 75 years later. And so what they did is they assigned one shaman to work with me alone. And I had my own ceremonies over 10 days every second night. Wow, and they were, and the other five worked with the rest of the group, and so they fired me for my own retreat. Now my ego didn't like that very much, but uh, you know, these people came all over the world to work with me, and now you're telling me I can't do this. Yeah, we're telling you you can't do this. I said, yeah, I get it.
0: Do you recognize that they were correct? Like, do you see what I you knew were... right
1: away? They were correct. Yeah, and I accepted it. And so this guy worked with me for five nights, and by the fifth night, poof, I had the big breakthrough experience. Yeah. So So what I'm saying is that... What was the big breakthrough? I won't... I describe it in some detail in the book, I. but you've had those experiences, and as far as I can tell, it's very difficult to describe them in language, because they're like beyond words, yeah. you know? But... The download I got was, yes, my grandparents died in Auschwitz when I was five months of age. Yes, my mother was terrorized and stressed. Yes, I was a very scared little infant. Yes, the world was a terrible place to be born into, In that place at that time. But that doesn't have to define who I am. It doesn't have to define how I trust the world or how I don't. It doesn't have to make me defensive and scared anymore um, because because there's also love and there's also acceptance and there's also a reality that's much bigger than the trauma that happened to me. So it kind of liberated me from having to drag that experience around in my soul the way I really had. So you feel like up until that point, you couldn't
0: accept the fact that there was love in the world. There was good things to focus on. You were too consumed by your own personal trauma.
1: You know, everything works in layers. So in many ways, I did accept it. And if you had asked me, I would have said, yes, the world is a can be a beautiful, loving, accepting place. But on some deep emotional level, I couldn't allow myself to feel it.
0: So you had perhaps developed a pattern of thinking that was insurmountable and that even though you had had psychedelic experiences and even though you thought you were doing a great thing by bringing people to these ceremonies and exposing them to the mother and all, all of the that comes with it, you had not changed the way you really viewed the world.
1: Well, again, it's that's true in a very deep sense, but it's Again, it's sort of relative because I'd seen a lot of people heal. I had guided them to healing. Right. I've, I've seen miracles. But you so know that
0: sometimes it's, it's, people so, do that. They concentrate on others instead of concentrating on themselves because it's that, kind of easier to fix other people's problems.
1: But that's exactly the case. Yeah. That was one of those. And, 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 but also because one of the impacts of trauma is that you feel so alone with it. So everybody thinks that they're uniquely traumatized. Right. So even though I knew intellectually that wasn't the case, and I, I knew how to work with people who had terrible experiences, I mean, much worse than mine, mm-hmm. um, I just couldn't allow that to penetrate me very deeply, as deeply as it needed to. And what, what these shamans helped me to do was to kind of help remove another skin of the onion let me put it that way. It's more like the skin of the onion. It's not one layer. There's different layers. And so I've been through many layers, very important. But what I can tell you is that since that experience, people who have seen me before, they say there's a more more lightness about me than there used to be. You know, so it's, people pick up on it.
0: I wish I'd met you before.
1: I <laughs> I was really dark and dour.
0: Yeah, I'd like to see what the difference is. Because uh-huh. I've met people that have uh, changed because of psychedelic experiences. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I certainly have changed. Yeah. So I kind of would have so, liked to have met me.
1: So, what. <laughs> how would you summarize your experience with them? I don't mean the different experiences, but in terms of the transformation that you've experienced.
0: Uh, much kinder. Uh huh. Yeah, just. Uh, I grew up in, um, competition and most of my, uh, teenage years were spent, um, competing in martial arts competitions.
1: Well, I know I read somewhere about you that you said that you hated the idea of losing.
0: Yeah. I hated the idea of weakness. Yeah. I didn't even like the fact that I enjoyed sex because sex to me seemed like pleasure and pleasure seemed like a lazy, weak way to approach life. Wow. But I was very dedicated to winning. You know, I was very dedicated to being the best, mm-hmm. and uh, that that mindset is very ruthless, and uh, it takes a long time to get that out of your system.
1: So when you say dedicated to being the best, there's two ways you can be the best. We can be the best version of ourselves, mm-hmm. or we can be better than anybody else. Which best were you thinking about?
0: I was trying to be the measurable best at a specific form of competition. Yeah. Where you're just take, essentially take, trying to hurt Take one over.: Yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the problem with that is it's to be the best, you have to be insanely dedicated to this one thing, and you have to be pretty ruthless.
1: Yeah. I understand.
0: You know, and uh, it took a while for me to realize what that was. Yeah, it took a while for me to realize that my desire to do that was not a healthy desire, and that it was a desire based on trying to acquire uh, love and and respect and the appreciation of others, and I was trying to do it through accomplishments.
1: And are you aware of the trauma that led you to believe those things?
0: Yeah. Mm. No, my my path is pretty clear. I mean, mm. my childhood was yeah. very fucked up, and yeah. my father was very physically abusive, and my mother left him when I was five years old, and it was there's a lot.
1: Yeah, I it. there's get a lot it. there. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't want to, by the way, uh, create the impression that I'm some kind of a psychedelic evangelist. I think there's, mm-hmm. I think psychedelics have a low role, but it's somewhat of a limited role uh, overall in healing, and then when it comes to social issues and. Even individual healing, so it's not like I don't just don't get the impression. It's not the only thing. It's not it's, it's not, it's, like it's, a, it's not the only thing, and pill. certainly in my experience, it's it's a relatively relatively small small part of what I do, but it's it's a very cherished part of what I do.
0: Well, the experiences are so profound and so significant, but they are just a day. Yeah. And then you know whatever more you do, but yeah, there's a lot of days. Yeah, you know and yeah. so it's very easy to go back to baseline it's very easy to slip back into your old, old way of thinking one of the ways that i describe uh psychedelic experiences is like a real like a DMT experience is that it's like control alt delete for your brain so your brain reboots and mm-hmm. then you're left with an empty desktop mm-hmm. but with one folder and that folder is labeled my old bullshit <laughs> and you can either choose to approach life approach life with a completely new perspective because you've had this experience. Yeah. Or you can comfortably and easily slip back into that old mild bullshit folder. Yeah. And most people do that.
1: Yeah, and, and I would say easy. that's true for me as well. You know, yeah. and but it you know, but the learning continues. Yeah. But overall, um, there's so many issues and so many problems in this culture and psychedelics will never be the answer. No. You know?
0: It's not the answer, but it's one of the answers. It's one of the answers, And for I sure. think it's also the, having the option
1: yeah.
0: and having people know that there is some sort of a deeply profound transformative option. This thing that happens that brings you into this other dimension, which yes. is truly feels like another dimension. I don't exactly know what's going on, but whether it is or isn't a dimension, another dimension, it has the feel of another dimension. I right? think
1: it opens up a part of our brain and consciousness that's usually not accessible to us. I mean, some yeah. people get there with our psychedelics, don't they? They have these… Um, Holotropic th- breathing. The, hol- you know. or, or or just deep meditation for some people. Right, but that's also
0: you know? igniting endogenous. I mean, if you look yeah, at… Yeah, the, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. it's in our brain, that yes. capacity. Yes.
1: Psychedelics get us there much quicker. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, sometimes it's even very frustrating because the person who drive me, drove me this morning to your studio, um, he's a vet, and um, he's got friends with severe PTSD. And we know specifically there's a plant called Iboga, mm-hmm. Ibogaine, that's been shown by experience. First of all, it's got this amazing quality that it can get People love heroin overnight. Yeah, you know, and I've seen that personally. I've done it myself. It's not for the faint-hearted, by the way.
0: What did uh, ibogaine do for you?
1: You know what? I'm going to forget what I was saying. Okay, go ahead. So So let me go back. Yeah, we'll go back to that. (laughs) So this man who was driving and was talking about, and I was saying, you know what? There's actually a plant called iboga. Ibogaine. That iboga is the plant that is really good for PTSD, and there's people working with it south of the border here. But they can't work with it in the U.S. because right. in the U.S. it's illegal, which is insanity. It's insanity. You know, and he said, actually, this friend of mine with severe PTSD he's actually gone south of the border and, and working with one of the universities who was doing a study on it. I said, oh, good. And, 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 and he says, the driver, he says, there's already been such profound changes in my friend. Now, what the hell are we doing? Yeah. Ma- making that illegal. Instead of embracing it and researching it,
0: yeah, know. it's not harming people. That's the the thing about ibogaine is it's not an addictive substance. It's no. it, it's Im- almost impossible to be addicted to it.
1: Well you wouldn't who'd want to yeah. do it? Who'd want to do it anyway? <laughs> well, I have never
0: done it, so I'm just going <laughs> on other people's uh, experiences. But it doesn't seem like something that you would ever want to do a lot. No. What was it like for you?
1: It was the toughest experience. Of my, one of the toughest experiences of my life because oh. it just um, you're so out of you you, you so lose control. You know, and uh, felt pretty dark and heavy at times. Afterwards, I felt very clear. You know. Um,
0: dark and heavy, how so? Sorry? Dark and heavy, how so? How did it feel dark and heavy?
1: In the body, and there's nothing you can do to change it. Like, if you feel uncomfortable in your body, and there's nothing you can do to change it.
0: Yeah. It's.
1: It, it, that feels pretty scary you know now even though i know that this experience will end now again i have to say that i'm more resistant to psychedelics than most people i have a pretty thick skull as i told you before and uh, it takes a lot to get through to me um i uh i keep getting worried that we keep talking about psychedelics and there's so much more that i want to no, say no but there's plenty of time don't okay. worry about it okay great so In March of this year, I did a mushroom ceremony um, with some indigenous Canadians on their land. and It was one of the deepest experiences of my whole life. But the dose that I took was triple or quadruple the dose that most people take, just because it takes a lot. uh, What was the dose? 16 grams.
0: Whoa.
1: (laughs) That's going deep. And it took me deep. (laughs) It was, be- it was beautiful. <laughs> it was great. It was a great experience of my life. How long did it last? Ah, about seven, eight hours, something like that. And, you know, it rains. And then, then I sat outside with one of my indigenous friends, who I'd never met before, but we were blood brothers right away. And um, it was this beautiful mountain, and bison grazing in the field and the sunset. And, mm. oh, my God, the beauty of it all. Mm. and And the... And the lovingness of it all, you know, and the um, companionship and the com- camaraderie of it all. And these people have really suffered. And, and their suffering was right there as well. They asked me to participate to help them with the trauma part. Um, so it was one of the most poignant but also most beautiful experiences of my life. But it took a lot to get me there.
0: Yeah, the North American indigenous cultures, and uh, I think you could say the same about Australia and some of these other countries that have been occupied. Yeah. It's one of the most devastating things in modern times, and it's not discussed. No. It's, uh, we have relegated them to reservations, and they're kind of removed from the cultural conversation as far as like people in this country that are troubled. You know, we think often of slavery, which is also horrific. We think often of immigrants from other countries yeah. that are disparaged and yeah. experience racism. But we don't think about the native indigenous people that were here that had everything taken away from them.
1: That's the colonial mindset is that the indigenous people, indigenous, they don't matter. Right. You know, um, I read this book about Quanah Parker. Do you know that name? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Was it the Empire the... Summer Moon. Summer Moon, yeah. yeah. Beautiful book.
0: Yeah, we have a photograph of Quana Parker outside. Was oh, that him out there? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah.
1: yeah. And I quote I quote him in this book, and I do talk a lot, of, a lot about the, not just the indigenous experience, but also the wisdom they had, mm-hmm. and they have. If only we were willing to learn what they have to teach, not that we have to give up our science and our medicine and our technological achievements, but my God, if you could infuse some of that with the wisdom that... They have to offer us, but we're so bloody arrogant, Yeah, primitive. We have nothing to learn from them, you know, and yet they, s- they have so much to teach.
0: They do. I mean, and they most certainly had an incredible way of living with nature. Yeah. They were also incredibly ruthless and mm-hmm. also to other North American tribes. Yeah. I mean, they the way they lived their life was absolutely savage yeah. and barbaric.
1: It's sort of like the white man, no?
0: Mm, mm, sort of. I mean, there's there's I mean, certainly parallels to all sorts of conquerors in the way they treat their victims. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it seems to be a human characteristic of cruelty. And I think part of that is based on the fear of being conquered yourself or the fear of, you know, mm-hmm. of being captured and killed and yeah. b- being have other someone else's will imposed upon you, so they impose it upon others.
1: I know they were quite capable of terrible cruelties, I wouldn't put them any different from anybody else on that level. I mean, when I think of all the tortures and massacres and cruelties, mm-hmm. and, you know, that people It's a have, human characteristic. That, well, it's human characteristic under certain conditions. Yes. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, it's uh, unfortunately, it's more common, like the, the human cruelty, you know, that whether or not it exists in cultures is more common than not.
1: At a certain stage of history, that's true. Yeah. I might give you an argument that that it needs to be that way. And uh, in small band hunter gatherer groups, they don't. S- it doesn't seem to be quite like that
0: until they're invaded.
1: Until they're invaded, or until they go too large and the territory gets mm. a, b- a matter of competition. And you know, so I do think that, and I do discuss this as well. I I, I do think that we're very, very much creatures over our environment, and uh, so that what shows up as human nature is very, impo- is very often human nature as it is determined or, 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 or influenced by a certain culture or a certain set of circumstances.
0: Yeah, it's, um, when, when, when you think about the way human beings evolved, it seems like we have a brain and a body that really is designed for these small groups of humans like 200 yeah, people. That's right. That seems like that's, that's the design, yeah. Yeah, that seems like when we're in symbiosis, when we're in harmony. Yeah. When when everything is working and it works well. Yeah. That's when it works well. Exactly. When you get to Los Angeles, you know, this indifferent mass of human beings that's yeah. impossible to scale. When you look at the numbers of like New York City, people stacked on top of each other, and the indifference yeah. they show towards each other, yeah. and the disdain they have for other people, because other people, instead of becoming a, a valuable part of the community, they become a detriment to your ability to move around.
1: That's all true. And then the question is can we somehow learn what we've lost and meld that with? modern civilization you know that's the real question No, in in this culture where the general belief is that greed and competition and aggressive interaction no i'm good thank you and um and uh, s- selfishness and, and 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 aggression are the way to make it mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people to get to that place of communal kindness, and, 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 and but when I mean, you talk about human nature, I mean you talked about the kindness that you think you've attained or found that you've attained through, through psychedelic work, for example. I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'd be curious, which feels more like yourself, this kinder state of being or kind of the aggressive, I gotta be the biggest MF on the block which which are they both equally you or, or no is, which one feels more like you the kind part yeah well, the,
0: the, the other part is just a means to an end it's trying to accomplish a goal It's trying to fill a hole that can never be filled
1: exactly and so, that's
0: the workaholic that's you know yeah. but that's also the thing that we cherish in the society we cherish the outlier the overperformer, the one person who can push the boundaries past and above and beyond all others but
1: sometimes at the expense of others.
0: Yes. Many, may, most of the times, I believe, at the expense of others and certainly at the expense of their own peace. Exactly. You very rarely find a, a workaholic, supremely motivated, conqueror-type person who's truly happy.
1: But that's the whole point. And that's why, yeah. I, talk, that's why I talk about the myth of normal, that mm. what we assume is normal in the society right. is completely unnatural and unhealthy for human beings. It's a myth that it's normal. Hence the title of your book. That's the title of the book. Um, Yeah, so that kindness then is actually much closer to who we are as human beings than all that other stuff. But
0: certainly when you feel the best. Yeah, you you don't feel the best when you're dominating people. You feel the best when you're in sync with people, exactly. and you're happy, and you're having friends. Like yeah. my friend, my favorite moments in life is laughing with my family or laughing with my friends. That's my favorite moments in life. Just right. having a good time.
1: And whose isn't? You know? Yeah,
0: everybody says that's what we're really supposed to do. Yeah, but then there's also this sort of inherent desire to achieve success. You know and, and what is that success problem solving, uh, accomplishing goals, creating things there's this desire that human beings sort of inherently have to do these things. That's part of our nature as well. That's yeah. why
1: we've created so many, so many amazing things, mm-hmm. whether in science or technology or art or music or anything else. But that doesn't have to be at the expense of everybody else. Right. That yeah, can, it that should
0: can, be morally and yeah, ethically pursued. That's yeah. also why we hate fraud, right? Yeah, yeah. When, when someone is stealing money and they have all the success, but it turns out that what they've done is like done something illegal, yeah, like pyramid schemes or yeah. something where someone's using this sort of desire to succeed as a justification to victimize others.
1: Yeah, but you just described the corporate world.
0: Yes, narcissism. Yeah, it's narcissism. Corporate and, narcissism. It's a corporate, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, somebody calls it sociopathy, you know, and, and so that mm-hmm. y- y- we live in a world where, like you talked about sugar, for example. Well, there was this book, I think a few years ago, called Salt, Sugar, and Fat, or something like that, that was the title of it, by an American journalist, who shows that the food corporations quite deliberately set out to find the what they call the sweet spot just the right combination of sugar salt and fat that's going to make people addicted to their products mm-hmm. which is going to kill them yeah so these corporations are quite willing to make people sick and so i was talking to a colleague of mine uh, rob lustig who wrote a book called the hacking of the american mind and it's how about the, how about the corporations deliberately create products that make people addicted at the risk of making them sick and and so What kind of minds would deliberately set up to sell products and advertise them and to manipulate the market that will actually kill people? And this is respectable corporations with philanthropists at the heads of their boards and so on. Yes. that's, That's the world we live in.
0: Yeah, that's very dark. And that's also pharmaceutical companies.
1: Pharmaceutical companies, yeah. I
0: was just watching this very disturbing commercial yeah um yesterday with children and it was talking about adhd and it showed a kid that was not paying attention in class Mm -hmm. and it showed these kids like playing around and doing things they weren't supposed to be doing yes and then they introduced this medication Mm. and then you have the child raising their hand and then you have everyone clapping and you have the child with a big smile on their face and you've medicated your child to be a successful and integrated person in society.
1: Shall I I spot off about ADHD for a minute? Yes, please. That was my first book on ADHD. It's the American scattered or scattered minds, depending on which edition you get. And that was after I was diagnosed with it myself in my 50s. Mm. Um,
0: What does it mean? ADHD? Yeah, what is it exactly?
1: Is it real? Oh, it's real.
0: But what does it mean? Well, like uh, if someone has ADHD, it's not like you have herpes, right? Like you could say, "Oh, I've got a, you got a disease."
1: Well, uh, what is it? Well, they—that's the whole point—is that the medical profession and a lot of the so-called experts think about it as a disease, another one of these inherited diseases. In fact, they say it's the most heritable mental illness there is, and mm. I say it's neither an illness nor is it heritable. So the the car. Difficulty paying attention when you're not motivated. Yeah. So kind of tuning out, like that kid in the commercial. Like me. Okay, poor impulse control, so that you tend to act out whatever emotion arises. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the hyperactivity, difficulty sitting still and then to fidget and all that. And that described me to a T. Um, <clears throat> and, um, but as soon as I learned about the diagnosis, I knew something. This is not a disease and it's not heritable despite the fact that some of my kids were diagnosed with it. What is it? So tuning out is not a disease. So let me ask you a question, if I may. Okay. If I were to stress you right now, um, create stress, emotional difficulty or tension for you right now, what would be your options of dealing with that, of dealing with me? What would be your options? I could either
0: get upset or I could leave.
1: Exactly, you could fight back, flight or fight yeah Mm -hmm. but what if you didn't have those options
0: yeah then you're stuck
1: and now what does the brain do when you're stuck like that it gets distracted it gets tunes out
0: yeah tunes out you want to do other things think about other things
1: in other words it's a coping mechanism
0: yeah it's normal i mean
1: the,
0: the the idea that your child who is uh you know an eight nine year old ball of energy filled with you know, hormones and life and thoughts and things they enjoy. And, th- and then you make them sit down yeah. all day in this yeah. unnatural state in a classroom with fluorescent lights and stare yeah. at a teacher that's unmotivated and underpaid and is teaching something in a very boring and non entertaining way. Yeah. And then if this kid doesn't lock in like a zombie, we need to medicate them.
1: Yeah, well, the other part of it is that if you look at my infancy and it sounds like yours. We spent our first year or two under very difficult circumstances. A lot of stress. Infants can't help but absorb the stress of their parents. Right. They can't help it. What does an infant do? Could I have escaped or fought back? Could you have? All we could do is tune out. Yes. But when is this tuning out happening? When our brain is being developed. Right. And our brain this is the part that nobody taught me in medical school, but it turns out that brain science now teaches us that the human brain develops under the impact of the environment. So the, the most salient feature of the environment that shapes the circuits of the human brain is actually the relationship with the parents. And if the parents are present and emotionally attuned and available, the child brains develop properly. But the parents are stressed, The child absorbs the stress. What can they do with it? They tune out. And that tuning out thing is programmed into the brain, and then 10 years later, or 50 years later, we say, you got this disease. No, you don't. You've got a coping mechanism that's no longer working for you, but Mm. it it had a function when it first came along. So this whole idea, and, and, and by the way, if a family comes to me with their ADHD child, I'll say to them, what you've got here is a very sensitive child. That sensitive child is picking up on all the vibes, energies and stresses in your family. Wanna help this child? Deal with the whole family. Look at the parental relationship. Look at how, what stress is there in your life. Look at how you react to the child. Look at, do you understand the child's behavior or, or, or the emotions that the child is having? Or are you just trying to control the child's behaviors? Look at all that. And very often parents will tell me after they've read that book on ADHDs, they've totally changed their relationship to their child. The child changes. What a surprise! Mm. But you go to the most doctors. You got this disease. Here's the pill. And by the way, I took those medications, and they helped me for a while. You know, so I'm not anti. When you were in your 50s. Yeah, yeah, I'm not anti-medication.
0: Which ones did you take?
1: I took Ritalin, um, which uh, <clears throat> I can tell you the story. Sure. So. You know, one of the hallmarks of ADHD is poor impulse control, right? So, um, I found out about ADHD, and even before I was diagnosed, I took Ritalin. And in
0: Why did you take it before you were diagnosed?
1: Because I'm a doctor, and I could, hey? And, oh, so
0: you <laughs> diagnosed yourself?
1: Well, I did. And, 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 so and, you and,
0: at least assumed that you had that, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I,
1: I knew I had it. And, and, but not only that, also because I had poor impulse control. I never practiced medicine that way. Mm. I mean, if you came to me for any problem, my first impulse would never be to write you a prescription. Unless it was obvious that you needed it for an infection or something. I'd sit down with you and talk to you about what's going on here. But, but not me, P- poor impulse regulation. So I went to a cl- colleague of mine, a medical colleague. I said, hey Bev, I think I've got the HD. Can, can you give me some Ritalin? So she writes me a prescription. And then I took it in a higher than recommended initial dose. And uh, because, I mean, if a little bit is good, then more must be even better. And again, it's not how I practice medicine. Right. But I came to myself, that's a totally different (laughs) ballgame. So I felt immediately present and calm and grounded and focused. Yeah. And it's a stimulant. And I went, well, it calms the ADHD brain. Then I go home, and my wife says, you look stoned.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because you're calm. Yeah, Yeah. well,
1: because I got this glassy-eyed expression. and Within a couple of days, the, dip- the Ritalin made me very depressed. That's one of its potential side effects. So I did see a psychiatrist. I was formally diagnosed, and they gave me Dexedrine, and I took that for a while.
0: That's an uh, amphetamine. Isn't yeah, it's it? an amphetamine. It's another yeah.
1: stimulant, um, and it did help me. I became a much more efficient workaholic, and I could do even more. <laughs> it didn't change any of my emotional issues, but it made me more focused and so on. It helped me write my first book. But I, I haven't taken them for decades but because also I know that the brain can change if you treat it right. So this re, the reliance on medications that we have is, is a real poverty of the spirit, a real poverty of imagination, a poverty of medical education. The average doctor never learns this stuff. The average physician never gets a single lecture on brain development the brain develops in interaction with the environment so when you're seeing and, and let alone do they hear about trauma they don't hardly at all right so when they see an adult with ADHD or depression or addiction or or, or or bipolar conditions or 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 for that matter autoimmune illness or anything else they don't think of trauma they just think of this disease and they think that the diagnosis explains everything but the diagnosis don't explain anything because think about it Let's say Gabor or Joe goes to a doctor and uh, they diagnose with ADHD. Well, why is? What are the hallmarks of ADHD? Well, tuning out, poor impulse regulation, maybe hyperactivity. Why does Gabor have poor impulse control, uh, hyperactivity, and uh, tuning out? Because he's got ADHD. How do we know he's got ADHD? Because he's got poor impulse control and tunes out. And he's hyperactive. Why is he hyperactive to that have poor impulse control? He's got ADHD. How do we know he's got ADHD? Be- you know, it doesn't it's circular, it doesn't explain mm. it. It doesn't explain anything. Diagnoses describe things. And that they that can be helpful that way. But they don't explain.
0: Yeah, one of the things that people get so they get they get treated for and they get diagnosed with is anxiety. Yeah. And that one drives me nuts. Yeah. It drives me nuts because people pretend that anxiety is a disease.
1: Yeah. And
0: I'm like, my God, the world should make you anxious if you're a sensitive, introspective person. If you're just looking at the world itself and you you don't put it in perspective, like the world's, it's filled with anxiety. The anxiety is, it's future problem solving. You're you're thinking about all the things that can go wrong. You're thinking about your life in a, you know, potentially uh, devastating way. And that's not a disease. That's just a way you look at the world and people getting Mm. diagnosed with it.
1: Well- i won't quite agree with you on that one in what way i felt anxious at times the world sure. the world every day is the same if i the anxious,
0: world is the same but the way you look at it is not the same right that's the whole point yeah so that's, that's what i'm saying the, so well, that, well, the world true, is giving you anxiety
1: no the world is not giving me anxiety
0: right you're giving yourself anxiety uh, yeah. by looking at the world right and by
1: how i look at the world yeah because i look into i can look at the same world one day and feel grounded and connected, and I may, have all kinds of concerns about what's happening in the world, but I, my nervous system won't be on edge, my adrenaline yes. I won't be flowing, I won't be anxious. That's my uh, point, is that it's not a disease. It isn't a disease. right? So remember I talked about those brain circuits of lust and care and yes. rage and, uh, and, and, and and seeking and so on? One of the brain circuits that we have is described by a very prominent, late neuroscientist, Yak Panksepp, is for panic and grief. Panic and grief are the normal responses of the young human being, or the young animal, when care isn't available. Mm. So when the parents are stressed, distracted, economically, or politically, or because of their own unresolved trauma, or whatever's going on in their lives, and they don't respond to the child's distress, they don't pick up the child when they're crying. They make the child be alone when the child is upset the child's panic circuits get activated as they should be because when the child's panic circuits get activated, they cry for help, Yeah, That's, so it's necessary for survival. A young animal should feel panic when the adult is unavailable. In a rational world, in a sane world, that child would be responded to, but when children, as in our society, are not responded to in their distress, The panic becomes built into their nervous system, and Mm. now you have a lot of anxious people. Mm. And that's why more and more kids are being diagnosed. You're right. It's not a disease. It's a response to the environment.
0: And the thought process of, like, leaving a child alone when the child's crying, is that to toughen the kid up? Is the thought process that you don't want to encourage this sort of behavior because then they'll do it all the time? and then you'll develop an indulgent child. Like, what is the thought process?
1: The thought process is that the child's behavior is the problem. And so we have to fix the behavior by controlling it. Now, actually, the opposite is true. Because if you pick up the child when the child has distress, physical or emotional distress, you're teaching the child that the world is safe and they don't have to be they don't have to be anxious about it, and they can just ask for help. And it doesn't entrench kind of crying manipulative behavior. how How it works. Dr. Daniel Siegel, who's a psychiatrist at UCLA and a very prolific author and mind researcher, he says in his book "The Developing Mind," that the child uses the mature Circuits of the adult brain to regulate its own immature, unregulated circuits. So when the adults show up in a calm, loving way, that the child downloads that into his own nervous system, and then he he grows. He he doesn't. He's not going to be an infant forever. At some point he's going to be a mature adult who knows how to take care of themselves. That's a natural process. We don't have to teach kids to be independent. Independent is nature's agenda, because the parents are going to die. At some point, the mother bear is going to disappear. That bear cub has to be able to look after themselves in a mature, confident way. That's nature's natural agenda. What, right. the, mother, what the mother bear needs to do is to meet the, the needs of that infant bear so the infant bear can matures. So if we meet the child's needs, they're going to mature out of that helpless state with a sense of self-regulation and calm confidence in their own capacity. Mm. But when you don't pick kids up, what you teach them is that the world is not available, that they're alone, and that they're helpless. Talk about a formula for anxiety.
0: Hmm. What about the concept of coddling children, and what about the concept of creating, you know, what what someone would call a mama's boy—someone who is scared of the outside world and just wants comfort and attention, and just wants to be sheltered from stress and anxiety all the time. They just want to be alone yeah. with yeah. Their, their mother and their parents.
1: Yeah. yeah, it happens. But why does it happen? Why does it happen? So there's a study that I quote in the book where they looked at I don't know thousand or several hundred women, new mothers, and how they related to their infants. And most of them related very well. Some were not that available, and some were extra doting and extra coddling you might say with their infants. they looked at the adults thirty five years later. The people that were the most independent and successful and self actualized were the ones that were super loved by their mothers mm. okay now and re- and, and the and the conclusion of the researchers was you can't love children too much. now the case that you describe is not too much loving but loving that comes from a very anxious place mm. So these mothers that cuddle their kids when the kids doesn't need cuddling, they're not doing it because the child needs it, they're doing it because they need it. Right. They need it. They're doing it because they were not cuddled enough, they're anxious, and they pass that anxiety onto the child. Mm. You don't create those dependent kids by loving them. You create them by, by imposing your own agenda on them, your own anxieties on them. So those are the mama's boys, if you want to call them that. But the mama's boy is just a very anxious person who downloaded his parents or her parents' anxieties. That
0: makes sense. Because the kids that I know that grew up like that, their mothers were terrified of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so they... Boy, but how do you get out of that? If you're, you know, you've developed this uh, these patterns of thinking that are based on a mother that is incredibly anxious and scared of the world, and then you've sort of adopted these thoughts and, you know, they call you a mama's boy and that you're coddled. Like, how does someone... Break out of that.:
1: Well, <clears throat> there was a Greek playwright Aeschylus, who wrote about drama about 2,500 years ago, and in one of his plays, "The Agamemnon," he says that the way Zeus, or the way the master, the God created us, was that we have to suffer, suffer to truth. And with most people, mm. I find that at some point, like me and perhaps like yourself, some th- suffering happens that says, okay, you're not going in the right direction. So again, it's gotta begin with this understanding that what I'm going through is creating suffering for myself and people around me, and maybe it doesn't have to be this way. There's gotta be that recognition. Now, once you get that recognition, the sky's the limit. Because now there's all kinds of therapies and possibilities, now you can, I mean, I think a wonderful I, I don't like this phrase mama's boy, but it describes maybe a certain kind of personality. What if they did martial arts? What if they worked out? Yeah. What if they developed some confidence in their own bodies to start with? Because they don't have confidence in their bodies. That's what right. you know. Some there's all kinds of things they could do. Yeah, once that's you, a big factor. Once you get that there's an issue, you know, let alone you can go for therapy, you can do the trauma work, like whatever. Uh you can do the psychedelics, you can do MDR, you can do somatic experience, you can do any number of, you can do the therapy that I teach, compassion and inquiry, you can do the martial arts, you can meditate, you can do yoga, you can go into nature.
0: But you need to do something.
1: But you got to do something. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And that, that is the problem. And some of these people, unfortunately, they turn to drugs Cause, because they're so overwhelmed, yeah. they want a, a complete escape from the moment.
1: Yeah. Well, and and uh, they turn to drugs, or they turn to eating, yeah, or they turn to shopping, like I did, or, or to, shopping. Or, oh yeah, that I, was uh, your thing. I had a significant shopping addiction. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Uh, I I shopped for I, I, I talk about this in my book on addiction. I uh, I, I would shop for classical compact discs. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> you laugh, but some days I spend thousands of dollars, literally thousands of dollars a day.
0: Did you have the money?
1: Well, I was a doctor, hey? So,
0: yeah, so, so you could afford these compact discs.
1: And you know how the addicted mind works. It's brilliant. It justifies one addiction by another. I'd say, but I'm working so hard. I deserve to pleasure myself. Right. So one addiction justified the other, you see? But once, I tell you, I, I left a woman in labor to get a, a, a symphony from the downtown store. And I, wow. and, and I missed the delivery. Oh, my God. Now, that's how addicted I was to shopping.
0: But did you think that that classical disc was gonna go away? Like why did you go get the, the,
1: Does any addict think?
0: Wow, that's a weird addiction. I've never even heard of anybody being addicted to compact discs.
1: Well, there are people addicted to shopping. Yes. And and, 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 and the addiction is not to the object that you're buying because if, if it was to the object, you would just go home and enjoy it. Right. The addiction is to the acquisition. Mm. Now what happens during the, when you're looking for something and you're excited, you know what happens? The level of dopamine, which is one of these brain chemicals, elevates in the brain, which is just like taking uh, an amphetamine.
0: So it's the thrill.
1: It's the thrill. And so the gambler, the workaholic, the shopaholic, the sexaholic, any addict, substance addict, they're not after the actual, they're as much as after that thrill, that seeking, that dopamine hit, Mm. the pornographer, you know, they're after that dopamine hit. Right. Now, the, now dopamine, which is the seeking chemical in our brain, the one that makes life vital and, and, and interesting and, 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 and you know, makes us explore novel objects or seek a sexual partner or seek food, those dopamine circuits de- develop or don't develop based on what happens to you very early in life. And so that children that don't get the proper experiences, they might be lacking dopamine. Now they have to seek the thrill of the stimulant drug or the or the exciting activity mm. or the dangerous rock climbing or the so they can feel really present and grounded oh wow or or the or 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 the shopping or the compact this and it's always about the next thing cuz you're looking after that dopamine hit
0: mm yeah. i was just watching this documentary the alpinist have oh, yeah. you seen it
1: I've heard about it, yeah.
0: It's about a young man who was yeah. uh, a free solo climber. And did he who, die? Who died. Yeah, yeah he died yeah. in an avalanche. Yeah. Um, he was constantly pushing the boundaries of, like, what, what he could get away with. And he was free soloing these rock faces, and then that wasn't dangerous enough. So he moved to ice climbing. Yes. And so he's with no rope and just these axes climbing, these picks climbing up glaciers climbing Mm. up Mm. in and one scene there was this ice that was detached from the face of the cliff yes so it was separated by several feet you could see Mm. the gap in between Mm. the ice and the face of the cliff and he's climbing the ice could break off at any second it's not permanent and he's just digging in his pick and pulling himself up this and then apparently he had gone to the top with this other guy and on the way down they died in an avalanche
1: no, I bet if you interviewed him, and I've seen interviews with these people, yeah, uh, the free divers and the free mm-hmm. climbers and all, this, what's happening during the experience? I'm totally present. Yes, I'm at one with life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no separation. I'm grounded. Yeah. I'm totally focused. I'm fully alive. Why? Because it triggers the dopamine in their brain.
0: So you feel like people like that probably have. Had something happen when they were younger where their body doesn't develop dopamine properly under normal circumstances. I'm convinced of it. Well, that makes sense. I've had Alex Honnold on several times, and he is uh, the, the guy from um, – what is the document? Is it Free Solo? Yeah. The documentary Free Solo, and he's mm-hmm. very famous for climbing like um, El Capitan and, mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. sticking his hands in these cracks of the walls and climbing up with no mm-hmm. ropes. Mm-hmm. And he's a very calm guy. It's very interesting. He's, like, sort of calm and mellow. And, you know, when you talk to him about climbing, and he's like, no, it's like you, you're pretty relaxed. It's pretty, pretty chilled out. Hmm. And they're clearly addicted to that. They're doing it constantly. They travel around yeah. the world to do it.
1: And risking their lives.
0: Yeah, risking their lives. Can and, I read you a quote? Yeah, sure, please. So if I take a moment to look yeah, for yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, Sure, sure, it's sure. It's on, on my cell words. phone
1: here. I, this is... Uh I carry so many quotes on my cell phone because I'm always trying to teach myself stuff. So um, this is uh, free diving. Let me just look for free diving. Free diving. No, not dooving, diving.
0: This is something that you saved on your phone?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I I have a thousand things saved on my phone. I have yeah. whole books that I've dictated to myself done on, on my book, on my phone.
0: Isn't that amazing? Cause, you, cause you store keep, that in this whole tiny thing you keep in your pocket.
1: It's incredible. And I keep trying to teach myself stuff. I think if I just dictate it, maybe I'll learn it, but guess what? Next time I read it, <laughs> why wasn't this here before? Of course it yeah, was. Yeah, of course Anyways, it was. Anyways, this is a woman called Natalia Molchanova. She died at age 53 on August 2015, free diving. Oof. She is one of the world's leading f- freediver. And here's what she says about the experience. Free diving is not only a sport, it's a way to understand who you are. When, you go, when we go down, if we don't think, we understand we are whole. If we don't think, so the, the mind just gets out of the way. We understand that we are whole. We are one with the world. When we think, we are separate. On the surface, it's natural to think, and we have many information inside. We need to reset sometime. Free diving helps to do that. In other words, free diving gave her this experience of unity and oneness, mm. and the quietness of the mind. Now, the question is, why do we have to go with such extreme limits, some extreme um, lengths yeah. to, 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 to find that state? You know, and When I read that quote to a couple of friends of mine who are fierce meditators in a way that I'm not, they said, That's what we get when we meditate, Mm. you know, but these people are serious meditators. So, but that state of oneness, that's just the highest state we can experience, isn't it? Yeah. When we get that, we're not these separate individuals. And this society creates this, what Dan Siegel calls the myth of the solo self, that we're all just individual separate little creatures struggling to make it against uh, competition and, 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 and. in in um, in a fearful race with everybody else and it's so that we we get separated from ourselves which is the essence of trauma and we get separated from each other and then we have these peak experiences and we keep seeking these peak experiences because yes. we don't know how to make it real in our own lives
0: one of the things you find out in competition is that the real competition is with yourself. Yes. You are competing against other people, yeah. but you're competing with yourself to improve upon your performance against other people. Yeah. You're not really competing with other people. And once you realize that, it's a real revelation. You realize like, oh, I'm fighting my own demons. These, this is These people are just, this is a, a mechanism for me to, to be able to, to find that in me. Yes,
1: which also means that there's no real loss, is there? Right. I mean, if you've done your best, well, maybe you can do better, but there's no failure is what I mean.
0: There is, but in failure there are lessons. It's yeah. beneficial. Yeah. Even though failure feels bad yeah. because you didn't accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, That the motivation that you get from that and the revelations and the, the knowledge that you get from that are crucial to your development as a human being and in whatever your chosen pursuit is.
1: Well, let me argue with you again, if I may. Please. So I mean, you work out, and I know you talk. About you have this brutal physical workout program and all that. Yeah. And I don't do weights, and you can see in the relative size of our arms as to which amongst, which which of the two of us does resistance training. I just swim. I don't do mm-hmm. weights. Now, if you and I had a wrestling match right now, and uh, or even a taekwondo match, which I've never studied. But I did my best Mm -hmm. to show up as alert and as Mm -hmm. powerful as I could. And you defeated me. Would I be a failure?
0: Well, it's not fair. Okay? And competition, one of the things that you learned about competition is that you need to scale it. That's true. You know, that's why we have divisions. We have weight classes. And we also have uh, belt rankings. So you would assume that someone who is a white belt is a relative beginner. That's one of the reasons why when we're talking about people who cheat, sandbagging is uh, one of the most reprehensible things amongst competitors. And what sandbagging would be is imagine if you had a black belt in judo.
1: And you played somebody who was less.
0: No, and then you entered into a jiu-jitsu competition. You would technically be a white belt in jiu-jitsu. But you would be very experienced in grappling and submissions, and you'd be dominant, and you would just tear through the field of people that were also white belts and people would be angry at you justifiably so because you're violating the the rules of this scalable competition. And yeah. through the scalable competition, you're supposed to be met with surmountable challenges. Yeah. Things that you can overcome, things and lessons you can learn. And even if you get dominated by someone, mm-hmm. what you learn is that that potential is within a human being. You know, mm-hmm. one of uh, my most profound experiences that I talked about many times is When I first started doing jujitsu, I got dominated by this guy who was, uh, you know, he's like an intermediate jujitsu player, but the overwhelming uh, control that he had over me and the dominance Mm. over me was so Mm. eye-opening because I didn't know that a person could do that to me. Mm. And now learning that, Mm. I knew that that potential was in a human being. He wasn't like Physically gifted he wasn't much stronger than me or mm. bigger than me He was just much better at this thing that we were both doing right. and I realized that on the path He was many miles ahead of me and that I could go down that path and achieve what he is doing and yeah. that was very uh, It was very enlightening
1: fair enough Um When you talk about sandbagging, it reminded me of this Paul Newman movie called The Hustler. Yes. You know, the... the, the, Yeah. Big John, you think this boy's a hustler? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that movie
0: a hundred times.
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful film. Yeah,
0: I play pool. So that... that, Okay. That is a big part of pool playing is people pretending they're not as good as they are. Yeah. But that's a desperation thing and a gambling thing. There's a a lot involved in that too.
1: But to go back to the idea of failure, so let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. Usain Bolt. Mm-hmm. If you line up at the 100 meter race, so the 200 meter race, against the same bolt, right. and you come in second, are you a failure?
0: Well, you didn't beat him.
1: But are you a failure?
0: Well, it depends on where your performance threshold lies.
1: But nobody's going to be as good as him.
0: That's not true. Someone will be as good Eventually. as Eventually. Yes. And that's the whole purpose of doing that. But the whole in, purpose of records. Yeah, but not. But you're that. chasing a very specific thing there, though. You're chasing yeah. extreme excellence. Yeah, yeah. And if you choose to be that person that chases extreme excellence in a very narrow and rigid discipline, yeah. right, this is a very narrow and rigid yeah. discipline. It's very yeah. comprehensive, but it's very yeah. narrow and rigid. Yeah, that's yeah. running in a straight line as fast as you can.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, someone has to be the best. And if you choose to do that thing and you are not physically gifted, then you have a problem. Because there are some things that are dependent upon your physiology. They're depending upon the size of your limbs, the length yeah, of your limbs, for sure. your genetics. And yeah. some, you, some people, for some people, that threshold is insurmountable.
1: Well, and this is where genetics does come into it. I mean, we have certain capabilities. And, you know, I, but all I'm saying is, in my mind, coming in second to that guy is no failure as long as i've done my best as long as the person in the next lane is doing their best sure they've succeeded
0: they have succeeded in a way um there's a there's a great quote that i, I remember when my early years of taekwondo where uh, my instructor said that um, martial arts are a vehicle for developing your human potential mm mm-hmm. And that through overcoming these difficult obstacles and the fear of competition and, and learning that with discipline and focus you can get better, it can elevate your ability to do everything.
1: It isn't so much of that also. Um, I get that. And, and isn't so much of also being completely present and focused yes. and connected to your body mm-hmm. and, and grounded and... and uh, responsive to what's happening in the moment?
0: Yes, you have to be in the moment. You yeah. can't be thinking too much. You yeah. you rely on your training and your focus and yeah. the ability to maintain this mindset.
1: Yeah, which is so missing from our lives in general.
0: Yeah, well, it's you know? also one of the things that's missing from our lives is physically difficult pursuits, Yeah, which I think we have, um, we've categorized things in, into two ways things that are uh, intellectually difficult, which we praise, Mm -hmm. and things that are physically difficult, which we think of as being like base and, you know, less consequential to your overall development as a human being. But I don't think that's the case because I think that physical difficulties stress the mind in a way that we don't appreciate.
1: Don't we value our athletes and our our athletics and our... The people that can do incredible things. Sure we do, but we
0: also dismiss them as being intellectually inferior. One of the ways that people justify that an athlete is better than them at this thing is by categorizing them as a dumb jock.
1: Oh gosh, I read sometimes the blog of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's no intellectual midget, you know?
0: Mm, Of course not. I mean, to be great uh, uh, at something... I mean, whether or not he applies that to the rest of his life as well, yeah. that's what's—that's where it gets interesting yeah. because some people don't. They only focus on being the greatest at whatever, where it's basketball yeah. or golf, yeah. and they don't think about their life in general as being a project as well. They think about this one thing only.
1: And you know what? I, I might say that that certainly could have been said of me at a certain point, That of me at a certain point where I would be really focused on being very good at a certain task or a certain area of endeavor, which is to say medicine and healing, mm-hmm. but I wasn't applying the lessons to my own life. Right. Know? And I th- I think a lot of us get compartmentalized that yes. way. You know? Yes. Yes. We don't take our, our wisdom um, into our own lives.
0: Well, I think a lot of us need mentors, and we need people who have already gone down the path a little further than they have to tell them, Hey, this is what's going to come up, and this is how I've dealt with it, and this is what you can learn from my mistakes without yeah. having to repeat them.
1: I think one of the significant losses as society that we've sustained is the loss of elders. Mm-hmm. I mean, traditional cultures would have elders, and yes. we don't talk about elders; we talk about the elderly. Right. Uh, we define them in terms of their age, but 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 if you look at traditional cultures, the elders have huge status. Yes, and they know, should, and, and as they ought to, their experience. Yes. It also means. They don't get shunted to the side and get made to feel useless right. and develop dementia, you know Right. because uh, uh, they're active and involved in the community. Mm-hmm. and we've lost so much with the loss of um, the elder and the passing on of tradition, so yes we, we're so focused on progress, which has brought incredible advances that that again we've we sort of cut off from one part of ourselves. Which is rooted in tradition and rooted in wisdom. So, what if we could have both? What if we could have both wisdom and 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 progress at the same time? I think it's possible.
0: It's certainly possible. I mean, I've always said that about the idea of an ethical, moral capitalism. Yeah, is that the competition of capitalism isn't the problem? The competition is the end all, be all, like only win, only get ahead, greed is good, the Gordon Gecko yeah m- m- mantra. I think that uh, people get lost in the achievement of the goal as being the ultimate thing that's going to bring them happiness, and it's, it's never the case.
1: Well, now you have the corporations we talked about before. And uh, what's his name, Milton Friedman, this mm-hmm. uh, Nobel Prize winning economist, and he said that the the only legitimate business of a corporation is to make a profit.
0: Yes, and that's how they look at it. And, and that's, that's, that's one of the reasons yeah. why they can justify horrific yeah. acts. Yeah, And it's also one of the reasons why a person inside of that corporation feels separate from the actual horrific acts. So there's a diffusion of responsibility in being attached to a group. You yeah. know, I am just yeah. one of these people. Yeah. I am just a manager yeah. of this yeah. region, and I, that's all I do. I mean, I have to abide by my shareholders' needs,
1: in the book, I interview um, a guy who used to be a vice president for human relations for IKEA. And uh, he found out about my work about 10, 11 years ago, and he said, I want to talk to you. And I, he called me at home, and I thought he was just a strange guy with an accent. You know, when you get known a little bit, all kinds of people want a piece of you, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, here's another. But anyway he came out to Vancouver from back East and we had, uh, we had sitting with lunch at, at at my house and my wife is there. Uh, and Ray says, Ray, my wife says to him, his name is Ulf. And Ray says, Ulf, well, what is it that you do? And Ulf says, oh, I work with this company. Maybe you've heard about it called Ikea. And my, <laughs> and my wife just about jumped off her seat because she's just been to Ikea that morning buying some furniture, but Ulf says, for decades all he lived for was to be successful within the company and he totally lost himself Mm. he had he had no value he said that wasn't associated with his success as an executive and he says it was an empty existence and he says he was driving he was making himself sick so he gave it up you know but he he talked about what it's like inside that world and he's uniquely um he's a gifted photographer so he started doing photography and he's you know he's very healthy man but he had to really learn after decades that everything he'd been done had been done for some external and and, and in this culture we're so driven to validate our existence by impressing others by uh, by trying to make ourselves successful by the standards that are laid down for us by external forces that have nothing to do with our real needs and who we actually are as human beings that it's it's almost impossible not to fall into that trap.
0: It's very very difficult not to fall into that trap, particularly if you're invested in a career path and mm-hmm. you've achieved a certain amount of success, and then you have responsibilities and you have bills, you know, you have mortgages and
1: not not only that, you also have the whole world telling you how great you are. Yeah. So, so so when my wife would walk into a department store. or anywhere with a credit card, and they say, you know, are you the the wife of, oh, isn't he wonderful? And she was just gritting her teeth. Because the same wonderful guy who's such a success out there is not like that at home. In fact, Mm -hmm. it's at the expense of the home that his success is in some ways achieved. So that does that. So not only do we have bills to pay, we also even get all this validation for the way that we Abandon ourselves, you know,
0: yeah, and oftentimes you don't concern yourself with the appreciation of your loved ones because you get it no matter what you you live with them. You get it. You expect it. And but you you concentrate so hard on this thing that you're pursuing, whether it's climbing the corporate ladder, becoming a physician and, you know, working so hard constantly day in, day out. And that's the only way you get any measure of this feeling of, of value.
1: That's right. It's it's when you try and get that sense of value from the outside, which mm-hmm. which if you had been valued just for existing yeah. from the moment you were born, you wouldn't have to keep doing.
0: You wouldn't have to keep doing it. But w- the thing is, like, so many people from that terrible childhood have developed this ability to pursue excellence, and then they have shaped and, and enhanced and influenced so many other people's lives – because of their work, whether it's their art or whether it's their sport or whatever. Mm-hmm. Something that they've done, some way they've accomplished things has been incredibly influential to other people, yet they came from this horrific trauma.
1: Well, that's true. And the question is, can I balance that with more self-awareness right. and, 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 and a more expansive experience of life where they narrowly focused? Let me tell you a story and let me ask you what you think about it. Okay. If I told you about a four-year-old girl who is bullied by neighborhood kids, you've got daughters, don't you? Yes. So imagine your four-year-old daughter being bullied by neighborhood kids and one of them runs into the house to their mom and say, for protection. And the mom said to her, there's no room for cowards in this house. No, you get out and deal with it. Yeah. How would you see that?
0: Well, it's abusive.
1: Okay. Hillary- you,
0: you're H- setting the kid up to be not protected, and that you don't care, and and okay. also this is a is a horrific aspect of human nature: that desire to gang up on kids. If a group of people gang up on people and bully them.
1: So, speaking of that, you would see that interaction with the mom as abusive and traumatizing. Yes. Okay. This story was told on public television in the United States, in the form of a cheering audience, millions of people watching on television at the Democratic Convention in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was nominated and she told, and it was the voice of God, Morgan Freeman, who actually uh, narrated this bio-documentary about her and this was presented as a wonderful example of resilience building. And so what I'm saying, Trauma is so normalized in this culture yeah. that even when this horrific incident is being depicted on television in front of millions of people, people think this is wonderful. And nobody, 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 nobody commented on it. Now, 65 years later or 60 years later, the same candidate develops pneumonia during the campaign. I don't know if you remember that, when she got mm-hmm. pneumonia. You remember what she did? What? she sucked it up. She didn't tell anybody about it until she collapsed in the street with dehydration. Now, the supposed lesson was this taught me strength and resilience and independence and self-reliance. So a lot of the success that we sometimes perceive in this society comes at a huge human cost. And we don't even recognize it. It's so normal we don't even recognize it. I'm not talking about politics now I'm not well I'm talking about politics these are very often our politicians by the way but I'm talking about I'm not talking about policies of whether I support her or somebody else I'm talking about the human experience that's being depicted and totally normalized in this culture
0: yeah and that example is that that is a problem that people do think that that's a way to handle a situation like that where a child's being bullied to tell the child to go out there and face those bullies
1: yeah a four-year-old
0: yeah and then you look at the end result you have this extremely unlikable woman
1: you know who was was got she's built a defense around herself the unlikability that people pick up on the unrelatability. is this hard shell that he had to develop to protect herself. Yes. It's a simple trauma response. Yes. You know, and, uh, when, when you look at it that way, you just see a suffering human being. Uh Uh-huh. And it's,
0: it's even sadder because she's old and she doesn't recognize this pathway. She doesn't recognize where she is and why.
1: Well, her father used to beat the kids and she doesn't see that as trauma.
0: <sighs> yeah.
1: No, I, I'm not picking her up. It's but a different but, 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 by the way, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not. I know I'm what
0: you're saying, you're not I, picking on her. I'm not
1: picking on her, and I'm just giving a public example right. of yes. what happens. Yeah.
0: The um, the child abuse, the beating of the kids yeah. was standard. Yeah. That's, that's what's really crazy. It's yeah. like if you go back to uh, the 1960s, the 1950s, beating kids for doing something wrong was normal it was what everybody did yeah well i mean how much of an effect did that have on people
1: well the, there was a study this week just about that about how traumatizing spanking kids is
0: yeah i had a conversation with someone the other day and they were just like talking about how they spanked their kids and i'm like
1: no, they,
0: I didn't know what to do. I wasn't sure that I should just st- put my foot down and say, hey, you should never do that. You know, why would you do that? I shouldn't. I, I didn't want to admonish them.
1: You, you might ask them if they're open to an opinion.
0: Yeah, well, it's it was just one of those things. But it's where... so
1: difficult, isn't it? Because people get so defensive. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, the studies have been done over and over and over again yes. about spanking, and its effect, its effect can be as bad as more severe form of abuse.
0: Yeah, I could... I can completely see how that would be the case. I just don't think it's ever required, you know. I just, uh, I wasn't really spanked, I mean I, maybe a couple of times when I was really young, but it was nothing serious.
1: Well,
0: But you know what I'm saying, like it wasn't like, I wasn't well, held well, down and beaten.
1: Wait, wait a minute now, who's saying that nothing's serious? Me. As an adult. Me now, yeah, me, but, me but, as but, an but, adult. But but think of your kids. Yes. Young, but, but let's say one, let's say you did that to one of your children, would you ever yes. say to her, "This is nothing serious
0: no i would well I would never do that I well, don't, you wouldn't do it I don't do it and so. i don't even i I would never even consider it Well I try to have conversations with my kids, and I have it's, since they yeah. were really young I yeah. have conversations with them though I talk to them like I would talk to you, yeah, and although I'm much more you know expressive and lenient and and kind and and I tell them how much I love them and uh, mm-hmm. the only reason why I'm having this conversation with you is because this is just an issue that people have. Yeah. And one of the things that I always bring up with my kids is mm-hmm. whatever you've done, I've done it. So if you've lied, if like one I caught my kid lying to me once, one of my daughters, and I said, I, I used to lie to my parents all the time. It's totally normal. But what I'm telling you is you don't have to lie to me. Mm-hmm. And it's better for you if you don't lie If you just address Mm -hmm. things that you've done that Mm -hmm. were wrong or incorrect or, you know, unwise, let's just talk about them. I'm not going to judge you on a mistake because you're a human being and you're 12 and human beings make mistakes. But what's important to know is that I will praise you for telling me the truth if it's difficult. That's very good. Because I think it's, it's, it's a very valuable lesson for a kid. Because otherwise you pretend, you think you got away with it, and then you live with that lie. Of course. Yeah.
1: Well, there's a, the, the German philosopher Nietzsche writes somewhere that people lie their way of reality when they're being hurt by reality. Mm. And um, so there's certain politicians who are known for lying. Yes. Well, we know about their childhoods. Really traumatic, really abusive. And what kind lying. of
0: childhood did Biden have?
1: There was an article in the New, York, New Yorker magazine. About the Biden family, yeah, generations of alcoholism.
0: Well, that and, makes sense,
1: and uh, and other forms of manipulation and so on, and and so when you look at Hunter Biden, right. And Hunter has actually mentioned my work because uh, his own addictions, he he came to some understanding about the traumatic basis of his addiction problem. Mm. But um, that addiction on Hunter's part is just the downloading of multiple generations of family suffering. So it's not anybody's fault. You're not pointing fingers at anybody. But there's trauma in that family. And there's no American president in recent memory that didn't have significant trauma in their childhoods. And it's affected, of course, how they conduct politics. You know, and it shows up. I mean, uh, I don't know if you know the name, Bessel van der Kolk, he's a psychiatrist. There's a perennial bestseller in the New York Times called The Body Keeps the Score, which is about trauma. And this is a book about trauma it has been bestseller up for five years, and every week in the New York Times. And Bessel told me that uh, Donald Trump is a poster boy for trauma, mm. which he is in a certain way, because even often when the people say that he's lying, but by the way, there's Trump supporters here. I'm not arguing politics here. I'm just talking, talking about, about a human being. I'm talking about a human being. When they say that he's lying, I don't even think he's lying consciously much of the time. It, uh, his, 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 the guy who wrote The Art of the Deal with him, a guy called Tony Schwartz, once said that this man doesn't know the difference between the truth and the lie because if he wants something to be true, he'll believe it. Now, what other class of human beings will believe when they want something to be true? children yes no he had Trump had a terrible childhood and his his his, uh, his niece Mary Trump who's a psychologist whose father drank himself to death was Trump's brother and he drank himself to death so traumatized was he in the Trump family of origin well one of Trump's responses to that well first of all poor attention just his attention is all over the place that's a typical ADHD response I'm not diagnosing him I'm just saying I recognize it as a response to trauma. But the other is that he's got difficulty telling truth from reality sometimes because he wants something to be so true because his diff- because his early years were so difficult he couldn't face the truth of it. Yeah. And so what we're seeing in our politics very often are highly traumatized people, you know, who then have to act out their trauma on the public level. I don't care which party you're talking about. Right. I'm not being partisan here. I'm just saying how I see it.
0: Well, it's one of the more difficult aspects of modern politics is that the people that choose to pursue that level of adulation and attention and power are the people that should never have it.
1: That's the whole point.
0: Yeah, that's why it's so crazy. It's this wild pursuit, and every four years we hope for a new leader, someone to rise who's going to make sense of it all and fix it all, and yeah. it just doesn't happen.
1: Which kind of, which is true, and it also points to a real dynamic in political life that we're, on a on a political level, we're much more immature than we might be as individuals. So we're like, we're looking to the mother figure or the father figure mm-hmm. to fix it all for us. Yeah. Instead of us asking, well, what's going on here communally? What's going on on a social level or cultural level? Yeah. How do we all play a role in somehow making it better? We say, oh, let's just elect the right daddy or the right mummy, mm-hmm. and they're going to make it okay. And, and there's also the... Also and, so, and then four years later, we're disappointed. Yeah. So they elect another mummy or daddy.
0: And we're also locked into this tribal ideological thinking where you can justify the lies of the person on your side because they're on That's your right. team. That's right. And so you say, well, better him than them.
1: You saw that with uh, in, in your politics, American politics, because the kind of sexual adventurism that Bill Clinton engaged in mm-hmm. was never excoriated and, and, and criticized as harshly as, say, Trump. Right. Now, Trump was more egregious about it. I mean, he's talking about grabbing... People are the pussy because I can get away with it. I mean, that's yeah. But uh, that, he was that, caught on microphone yeah, saying that. True. Yeah. I guarantee you, Clinton
0: but, has had similar conversations. That's a good point,
1: but the point I'm really making is that I have to say, not that I'm defending Trump here. There's nothing to defend. It's, to me, it's a sign of dysfunction. Right. But he was criticized for it far more severely than Clinton ever was for the very same behavior. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So that and it works both ways that people tend to criticize in the others in the other side that which will completely excuse in their own side. Which yes. m- which makes political debates so toxic.
0: Well, no one's being honest. It's yeah. uh and we just we decide what <laughs> team we like and yeah. uh that's our tribe and yeah. that that's a, also a negative consequence of our development how we all evolved in these small tribal groups is that the outsiders are threatening but you are protected by whatever group you align with and you see that with the blue no matter who or red till dead you see that from either ideological position they support whoever's on their side
1: you know there's a um psychologist at notre dame university she's retired now Uh, her name is darcia narvez and she studied hunter-gatherer groups it might be interesting for you to talk to her once Mm. she studied them internationally studied them historically and uh i don't want to speak on her behalf but she could give you a very interesting um what's her name again um i'll I'll write it down for you afterwards it's darcia narvez and now she's written a new book which, when it comes out, you really might want to talk to her. I wrote, she asked me to write the foreword for it. And the book is called Devolved Nest, and it'll be published next year by North Atlantic Books. And I'm happy to give you her name. Okay, yeah. And, and, that and sounds she's, great. She's, she's got a huge body of work. She's written many wonderful books. She could really, she could, we can talk really, she can talk really. Um, maybe I'm talking too fast. This must be all the caffeine I'm drinking.
0: <laughs> You're not talking too fast. It's great. Oh, oh that's good. <laughs> no worries.
1: Uh, Anyway, Darcia could really tell you about her studies of hunter-gatherer groups. And not only about that, but about how how our evolution has mirrored and paralleled the evolution of other mammals and how much we have in common with other animals when it comes to rearing the young and interacting with each other and so on. She's a very fascinating um, person to talk with.
0: Well, I wouldn't be surprised that our evolution mirrors other mammals. Yeah. It's like we are mammals. We yes. are animals, no matter what we think of ourselves. We're just this weird mammal that happens to be, at least uh, amongst the ones walking on Earth, the most intelligent.
1: Yes, and uh, unfortunately, once that intelligence becomes disconnected from our emotional lives, it becomes a dangerous weapon, which is largely what's happened. I'm, I'm talking about our real emotional lives. Um, Darcy's got this f- concept called she says she says that we are species, species atypical which means that we're actually the only species that is capable of creating environments that actually hurt us mm. most species will seek out and cultivate and like beavers right. will create environments that will support the protection and nurturing of their young they build these dams they build uh they, they create ponds they make you know we create environments that actually hurt us. Yeah. So she's we're species atypical.
0: That's true, right? I mean, we create ghettos and we create horrible toxic air quality because of the way we yeah. develop power in our cities. And yeah, yeah, and then we justify it by whatever pursuit we're involved in. That you know, yeah. you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet.
1: We're also the. I mean, look. I mean, I as a Jewish kid growing up in Eastern Europe, um, w- w- with the awareness of what had happened, you know. I had some awareness of what had happened. My grandfather was 40, 54 and he was a wonderful doctor in a town and he was taken to Auschwitz and died that same day, you know. And so I grew up with this huge question in my mind of just how can people do this? and human beings are the only ones that will gratuitously and for no practical reason turn on each other. And they do this habitually. It's, it's not even like c- conquest and war. I mean, that experience didn't serve anybody's needs. Mm. It, had, it had no purpose other than the acting out of pure hatred and insanity by one people against another, you know? But this happens all the time in human life. And so my quest as an individual and as a physician and just as an observer is why why do we do this and what do we have to learn about ourselves so that we can break this chain of trauma?
0: Well, I think people need to hear it discussed in a way that they... it. it it makes sense in their mind, like they they're like what you're saying here today. I think is going to radically impact a lot of people that are listening to this because you're you're saying things that resonate. It works in their mind. They're like, oh, oh ha, oh that makes sense. Okay, mm-hmm. now I understand it. Mm-hmm. And then once you've intellectualized that, once you've you you have these ideas in your head. Now, when confronted by what would be a, a typical behavior, mm-hmm. a pattern that you had fallen into, mm-hmm. then you can recognize it and say, yeah. oh, this is why I'm doing this. And then the process of change is gradual and slow. What I think psychedelics, what the one of the ways they help, and I agree with you that they're only a small part of this process of change, yeah. but they allow you to completely detach from the normal patterns of life. Yeah in a way that is Absolutely. inescapable. Like Absolutely. when you're having a DMT experience or a, a psilocybin experience, it's. and one of the weird things is that the most profound of these experiences, or many of the most profound, mimic human neurochemistry.
1: That's the whole point.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's what psilocybin does. Yeah. That's what dimethyltryptamine yeah. does. It's all these things.
1: And we have even cannabinoid receptors in our brains. for cannabis Yes, our, yes.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there's undeniable benefits for some people with these things, but it's not a panacea. It's not as simple as like, take this, you'll be fine.
1: Well, I mean, two things occurred to me when you said that. What was the first thing? Um, Oh yeah, when you're talking about people recognizing, I think what's really important here is that when people look at their lives and where they've lied or that they've let themselves down or others, that they examine their experience compassionately, not with self-judgment of, of 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 a moral condemnation of themselves, but, hmm, why did I do that? Yeah. Why, what made me do that? Not as a way of excusing it, but as a way of understanding it so I don't have to do it again, you know? So that's the first point. Um, you talked about using natural chemistry. So let's look at opiate addiction. It's a really interesting example. So people are addicted to heroin, you know, and, and I worked with a lot of heroin addicts. In Vancouver's downtown east side, which is North America's most concentrated area of drug use. I mean, if you've never been there, it's an eye-opener. It's horrible. Yeah. So that's why I was a physician there for 12 years. And I was the doctor at North America's, at that time, only supervised injection site, where people would bring their drugs and inject themselves with heroin, with clean needles, sterile water, and if they overdose they'd be resuscitated. So opiate addictions and what you said about natural human chemistry. So why do people get hooked on opiates? Um, Well, opium works in the human brain because we have receptors for it. But why do we have receptors from a plant that comes from Afghanistan? Well, we don't. We have, as you said, receptors I should say, our internal opiate system. This is our own natural chemical. Now why do we have opiates? Well, if you want to understand opiate addiction, you have to look at what do our natural opiates, which are called endorphins, and endorphins are, it means endogenous, morphine-like substance. So why do we have endorphins? What do endorphins do? Well, the first thing they do is they're pain relievers, and they relieve not only physical pain, but emotional pain. Mm. So people have this natural painkiller, which is good. You know, if I bang my knee, then these endorphins, by the way, when people cut themselves,
0: so that's what they're doing?
1: The they're job. looking after the endorphin head. Wow. Now, um, the, um, so the pain relievers, physical and emotional pain relievers, that's the first thing they do. second thing they do is they make possible the experience of pleasure and reward and joy and elation. So those are important experiences because life is tough. What would our lives be like if we had no joy, elation, and pleasure? So endorphins help with that experience. The third thing they do is the most important thing. Then it's possible this little thing called love. Endorphins promote the loving contact between mother or father and infant. So when mother and dad, or mother or dad are looking into the infant's eyes, and the infant is smiling up at them, both the infant and the parent gets an endorphin hit. Now without that, now if you take infant mice, and you knock out the endorphin receptors, these little mice will not cry for their mothers and separation. What would that mean in the wild? Death. Their death. That's how important the endorphins are. Yeah. Now if you take human beings who didn't have those early experiences that promoted the proper development of endorphin circuits, you got a sitting duck for opiate addiction. When they do heroin, they feel normal for the first time in their lives, as many people have told me. Russell Brand told me about this experience of love that he had when he did endorphin. You know, and when he did heroin, you mean? Yeah, when he did heroin, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And uh, when I was working in detox at that facility I told you about, this big muscled guy, uh, imagine your body in a six foot four guy and earring and tattoos and shaved head and just tough looking as anything. And he was coming in for detox from heroin. I said, what does it do for you? And he said, dog, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's like you're sick and you're ill with a fever and your mother wraps you in a warm blanket, sits you on her lap and gives you warm chicken soup. That's what the heroin feels like.
0: Mm, love.
1: Love, yeah. And one, somebody told me, this sex trade worker with HIV, I said, what does it do for you? She said, when I first did heroin, it felt like a warm, soft hug. In other words, mother father love parenting why do people remain addicted to heroin because they didn't have those experiences yeah. and very often they had really negative and abusive experiences and then we punish these people we ostracize them we cast them out of society it's still a struggle in the United States to establish safe injection sites where people can use clean water so they don't pass each other with HIV and I mean with, with that backward
0: yeah And then there's the illegalization of iboga. Yeah. Ibogaine and uh, also psilocybin and ayahuasca have been shown to help people cure addiction and to have some sort of a center where you have trained experts that can guide people through these things. Exactly. And then (laughs) there's the problem with these these experts because they become a subject to all of the, the human flawed instincts of you know, the guru mentality, and then they become this revered person because they've introduced this person into this world of psychedelics, and and their ego grows, and they they feed off the adulation and attention, Uh and then they get lost.
1: I've seen psychedelic shamans even abuse, sexually abuse their clients. Not that I've seen it, I know of it very directly personally.
0: Yeah, I've heard of it as well. I've, yeah. I've heard of it as well And some of these retreats where you go to these other countries. That yeah.
1: So you have to really be have some due diligence before you go to a place. And this happens, of course, in the spiritual leadership work, all the Buddhist masters that have abused their clients or exploited their clients, yeah. the other Catholic priests who have- the It's sa- a power thing, right? The, the psychiatrists who have, yeah. the doctors who have, Yeah. the politicians who have. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just once you have power, and you don't know yourself right it doesn't matter how good you are and how much you know and how much wisdom you might even have but if you're not integrated you might very fall into the trap of using your power for selfish purposes and that's what these people do
0: yeah it's a that's a weird instinct that human beings have because it never ends well i mean it's it's mapped out there's been so many instances of these uh, cult-like situations or cult leaders. Yeah. And it never ends well.
1: No. It doesn't. Never.
0: And no. yet, people still go down that path because, in that moment, when they're in control of their flock, and when they're getting all this adulation, mm. and you know, they're doing whatever they want to do, they feel like they're superior. They're invincible. They're so significant. They're something special.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 and one sees that all the time. You see it in athletics. Yeah. There's so many athletes that I know that that were abused by mm-hmm. coaches and, and 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 experts. And the very famous case, the infamous case of Larry Nassar, the yeah the doctor who abused all these young women in in the acrobatic the ac- acrobats. You know? Yeah, and he got away with it for years and years and years because which is again is part of what the system does is it robs people of their internal power and they surrender it to others. And they don't even think to complain, right? Yeah. You know?
0: yeah, they don't think that they have the ability to complain. There's there's so many people that have power over them, and That's right. they're they're also holding this position of a spot on the Olympic team, and yeah. you're going to compete, yeah. represent the United States in gymnastics, and yeah. so you just deal yeah. with it, yeah. Yeah the the power dynamic of human beings having power over other human beings in that way specifically in regards to psychedelics is uh, one of the more disturbing things to me because I've seen this abusive thing happen in people that should know better. They should know better. They I mean they're supposedly on this journey and yet they're involved in this thing where they're they're clearly they're they're extracting a, a, an enormous amount of adulation out of these people and they're mm-hmm. using it in this very transparent way and when you hear them talk it's so obvious and mm-hmm. to anyone who doesn't know any better or mm-hmm. doesn't know them rather and they they mm-hmm. watch, like what do you think's going on here yeah. what is that a cult yeah. like immediately yeah. like i imme- because it's it's got that aspect of it it's it like does
1: but can become yeah and
0: the people that's that's a weird instinct too because we we're always leaning towards a tribal leader you know that's part of our our heritage of developing in these tribes Darcy
1: and Narvaez could talk to you about that yeah because the tribal leaders weren't all powerful rulers they were servants Mm. they may have been good at leading a war party but that didn't give them authority to rule to lawyer over the others you know so well, That's look, w- what, you, what we can right? say is that human beings are incredibly complex beings, and uh, we've got these incredible intellects, and uh, the more we come... You, again, you talked about the kindness you know, that you found in yourself, and that you recognize is closer to your true nature than your previous persona. Yeah. When we develop the power, or we develop the intellect, or any aspects of ourselves, we get cut off from the heart, we become very dangerous creatures. And neuroscientifically speaking, we think of the brain as sort of the ruler of everything. But actually we have three brains, at least three brains. We have a brain up here. Then there's a brain in the heart. There's a nervous system in the heart that has got important predictive and, and um, knowledge. So is the gut. Ideally, the gut and the heart and the, the nervous system up here will be all connected and in sync. And if we are, we're very grounded and present and wise. And if we're not, if we cut off anyone from the others, and that's what trauma does, is it cuts us into little parts. Mm. So we're no longer this whole. And when we, That means that certain parts of ourselves can then take over and rule the roost to the detriment of ourselves and and to others. And that's the essence of trauma, this this disconnection from our whole selves.
0: So essentially, human beings are this incredibly complex, almost organic machine that doesn't come with an operating system.
1: Um doesn't come with uh yeah it doesn't come with the well, it comes with an operating well opera, not, excuse me
0: not an uh, operating system an operating manual
1: that's exactly right yeah. it doesn't come with the programming so yeah. so it's how that operating system gets programmed by the environment that depend that determines so much of what we behave right. like and what what we love what we hate what we accept what we deny you know and 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 th- th- again that's the essence of trauma and so the subtitle is trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. How do we get back to that wholeness? That's my whole, not just mine, but it's one of my, that's the essential question.
0: And so you're trying to, with this book, provide people with uh, the tools and the understanding to recognize these inherent flaws that human beings have and these traps that they fall into and give them uh, an understanding of how to leave lead their life in a way that's more harmonious.
1: That's as good a summation of the book as I could give you.
0: Yeah, that's a very valuable thing to, to do for people because there's so many people that they just don't know what to do yeah. and they don't have uh, any outlet other than psychiatrists and psychiatrists oftentimes immediately put them on drugs.
1: Well, so again, I talk about that in the book. So there's this modern trend of what's called biological psychiatry. Yeah. Which is all about just change the biology of your brain by giving you this pill. What they're not trained in this to understand is that the biology of the brain is determined by the environment. So the brain develops an interaction with the environment and is in a lifelong interactive relationship with it, mm-hmm. both the internal environment and the external environment. So rather than blaming the biology of the brain, let's look at what shapes the biology. So. In a book I talk about I don't know if you're a comedian do you know who Daryl Hammond was or his? sure yeah I yeah. know Daryl yeah so Daryl's in the book oh is he yeah yeah so Daryl had a documentary about his life called Cracked Up um, which is when Netflix were it's still available on Netflix and Daryl um, in his 20s developed a mental health condition and over the next two decades or more he was seen by 40 different psychiatrists. What it's kind th- of mental health condition? Well, they called it uh, psychosis. They called it bipolar illness. He was given a whole lot of diagnoses, typically, and all these medications. Until finally, one psychiatrist in New York said to him, I don't want to call what you have, a disease. Something terrible happened to you. Now, Daryl was abused severely by his mother throughout his childhood. And... He says it was a hallelujah moment for me, but it had taken him decades and three dozen psychiatrists to them finally said to him, something happened to you, Mm. and and what you're experiencing is a response to what happened to you. So I interviewed Dara for the book, you know, and and he's gone a long way towards having dealt with this trauma, but nobody for all those decades is all about take this pill or take that pill, this diagnosis, that diagnosis. It's so typical.
0: Has Daryl had psychedelic experiences?
1: First of all, even if I knew, I couldn't tell you. Oh, because you're a doctor. No, because it's somebody's <laughs> private life that right. I don't have the right. You know.
0: Well, if he's talked about it publicly. But
1: I don't know that he has. So I haven't. I haven't heard, heard him. I haven't heard him talk about psychedelics. so I have no knowledge. So if he had talked about it publicly, and if I'd heard about it, I would naturally say yes. but right. I I just don't know.
0: Yeah. Um. The, the, it's all based on pain. I mean, it seems like everything that we're talking about, all these problems are coming out of trauma.
1: So there's so a lot of physical illness. Yeah. Like when you do the research, the more adversity you had as a childhood, the more risk you are for addiction, for mental health issues, mm. for relational issues, and also for autoimmune disease and malignancy. Mm. So, for example, there was a study out of Harvard University, uh, I think three years ago, Women with severe p t s d have double the risk of ovarian cancer really yeah really double double um
0: what about other cancers
1: in my experience and i I worked in palliative care for a while as well, looking after two million people and I've done the research a lot of malignancy is related to trauma and because
0: uh, what what's the mechanism is that it affects your immune system because you're severely stressed well let me because you're you not
1: an ex- Well, let me give you an example sure so Let's say a child is sexually abuses, you know? The natural reaction would be rage. Can they afford to be rageful? If they were rageful, what would happen to them? At the hands of the abuser.
0: They'd get punished even further.
1: Exactly. Therefore, the defense mechanism is to suppress the rage. Okay? That's just a natural defense of the organism. Mm -hmm. Okay? Scientifically speaking, I'll tell you a secret that most physicians never hear about, despite decades of research and thousands of research papers and elegant science. The mind and the body are not separable. What happens in the mind happens in the body and vice versa. They're one unit. In fact, one great researcher, uh, Candice Pert, uh, called it body-mind. It's one unit. Mm. So our emotional system, is part and parcel of the same apparatus as governs our immune system and our nervous system and our um, hormonal apparatus. It's all one system. It's right. not separate. They're different manifestations of the same system. Now, what is the role of a healthy anger? Like we've already talked about, is to protect your boundaries. What is the role of emotions in general? it's to let in what's healthy and nurturing and welcome and to keep out what is not is that clear enough is that mm-hmm. okay what is the role of the immune system
0: fight off intruders
1: and to let in what's nurturing and healthy right. when you take vitamins you don't want your and your supplements you don't want your immune system attacking that right so it's to let in what's nurturing and healthy keep out what is dangerous and toxic the immune system and the emotional system have the same role because they're one unit, when you repress anger, you're also suppressing your immune system. Mm. That's been demonstrated in the laboratory. Now, when you do that, your defense against malignancy goes down, because your immune system your immune system is supposed to recognize the malignant transformation, which happens in our bodies all the time. By the way, it's an accident of nature, but a healthy immune system will say. Oh, that's, that's a foreigner, that cell, I'm going to destroy it. Right. When you repress healthy anger because you're programmed to do so, because some parenting expert told your parents that an angry child should be banished from your presence, or because the child was abused and to survive the abuse, they had to repress their healthy self-defense. they also suppress, Then they learn to suppress their anger all their lives. That represses the immune system. Now the immune system turns against you. Or it can not fight off malignancy. The the physiology is straightforward. It's elegant. It's been worked out. Most physicians never hear this. Now there was a study out of Massachusetts, I think, which I quote in the book. Um, I think two thousand women were followed over ten years. Followed over ten years. Those who are unhappily married, and didn't express their emotions, were four times as likely to die as those who are unhappily married, but they did talk about their feelings. You can't- Four se- times? Four times, yeah. Wow. You can't separate your emotional life from your physiological life. Right. So when you look at the question of why do women have 80, 70 to 80% of autoimmune disease? They have much more likely to get rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, lupus, um, chronic fatigue, and so on and so forth. It's because women in this society are particularly acculturated not to be angry it's also why black people have more illness in society because they don't they can't be angry for a black person to be angry is to court danger and so if you look at the biological markers they're different not because of race but because of racism
0: and none of that has to do with diet
1: well yes In a certain sense it does, but it's not purely the diet. It's it's part of a whole um, mix of influences. So, for example... Diet is a factor. That is absolutely a factor. And the emotions. So, so as you know, for example, women who are... Because I've heard you talk about it. People who are obese are more likely to get COVID, right? Yes. But who gets obese?
0: People who are abused. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And why are they eating too much?
0: To cover up their feelings. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So it's all connected. Yeah. So the obesity epidemic in our society is it's an epidemic worldwide, by the way, as globalized capitalism extends its influence internationally. Obesity is a huge problem in China now. It didn't used to be. Really? It's a huge problem in Mexico. It didn't used to be. Uh, it's happening worldwide. It's an epidemic. But what's happening is that, number one, people are more and more isolated, more and more stressed. Now they eat to, so- to soothe the stress. And then the, in the goodness of their hearts, the sugar companies will come along and say, well, have this food. It'll make mm, you feel better.
0: The sweet, salt, fat combination. Yeah. So it's the system yeah. works elegantly. who boy, and it's just exploiting these openings.
1: Well, it creates the problem in the yes. first place, and then it exploits the openings that it creates. I yeah. mean, you couldn't design a better system if you wanted to, uh, A, stress people, and B, profit off the stress.
0: Do you have hope that we can sort this system out and that we can develop a better system? Do you think that that's?
1: I believe in human beings. Um, uh, I believe that your experience, you've experienced healing, you've experienced an opening of kindness in yourself. I have, I don't claim to be perfect. I don't think you do. But we would say that we've come a long way. Now, if we can, why can't anybody? So, right. so I think that human beings, I have a lot of belief in the human potential. I just think we have to work, recognize what the problem is and move towards conditions that will support that potential rather than inhibit it. So, yeah, I believe I believe in the possibilities of human beings.
0: That's why I get so excited about these kind of conversations and about your work in general is because it does give people a viable field of study and an option to understand and to, to look into all of the things that bother them and what what is actually happening? What are the underlying factors that are leading me to these bad decisions? What are the underlying factors yes. that lead me to this general feeling of distress and being upset?
1: Well, I think people need a map to themselves. And um, I think my work and the work of others that I highly respect is to offer people a map to understand themselves, so that they can navigate their lives with some information, rather than blindly.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's all we can do. You know, all you can do is sort of give people another viable option. And, and give people an understanding of why the the current options are so unsatisfactory and what caused them and wh- why they're there and how you could avoid these problems. Yes, and how you can get better. Yes. Should we end it right there?
1: We can end right here. I think so. I couldn't. I couldn't think of a better way to end it.
0: <laughs> it's a good way to end it. Well, thank you again. Thank you for being here and thank you again for uh, all your work. You've uh, really done some amazing, amazing stuff. And it, it's like. Just have someone with your ability to express yourself, hmm. put that kind of information out there is incredibly valuable to people. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you for giving Just, me the opportunity. Please,
0: let's do it again sometime. And uh, the myth of normal, is this out currently? Is it out right now?
1: September the 13th.
0: September 13th. Yeah. So it's that's like two days.
1: That's, right? No, it's five days.
0: Oh, what's today? Oh. Seventh? I don't know what's going on. The eighth or the eighth. It says five days. Yeah. Okay. So, in five days. So, thank you very much. And uh, did you do an audio version of this as well?
1: There's an audio version, which is written, which i got to mention. My co-writer is my brilliant son, Daniel. And he also narrates the audio version because he's a very talented uh, actor and and, and, and voice person. Uh, An award-winning narrator of books. So, Daniel did the audio version which will be available the same date as the book is
0: beautiful shout out to daniel all right thank you appreciate you take care bye everybody